You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about something other than Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Jack. Hi, and I'm Rob. And, uh, well, if you weren't aware of what this podcast is because you've seen what it's called, then uh, what you won't know is that I am talking to the creators, the co-writers, the producers, and the director of The Secret of Springheeled Jack Saga that's been coming out on the Wireless Theatre Company's audio feeds and that I've been reviewing for the magazine and on the pad- podcast for the last several months uh, that's been going on for the last six years and here they are in person to talk about it. Hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, well, we, I think we've been talking about doing this for a while, but I always knew as soon as I started reviewing these that I wanted to get the two of you on at some point. But before we dive into all that, there's something else I need to explain for the listeners before we get stuck in. And it is that at the end of this podcast, I also have an interview with Chris Perry from Kaleidoscope, who some of the listeners will know have been um, on their Facebook page, have been announcing various finds they've been making all week, such as, well, the pilot episode of Softly Softly, an episode from the first series of The Avengers, um, some early Z cars, and all sorts of other things as well. I think I've just surprised the pair of you with one of those, because you won't have seen the rest of the announcements yet, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> well, the interview's going to come up after this. It's about 40 minutes long, and here's the problem. The Skype connection between the two of us was absolutely appalling, so the sound quality is not very good at all. But the interview is fantastic, and Chris has a lot of really interesting things to say. So I would beg anybody who's listening to this podcast to stay tuned and to bear with us as we uh, have the interview at the end. But before that, the secret of spring Jack... But, but, Jack and Rob, before we start talking about that, this is ostensibly a Doctor Who podcast, so I figure we ought to at least have a couple of minutes on Doctor Who first. Are you both oh, yes, Do- please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, are you both Doctor Who fans? We are, yes. and we first became friends because we are both Doctor Who fans. So, yeah, yeah we bonded over Who, basically. Yeah. Oh. Oh, go on then, explain. Was that at school or has that been since school? No, that was at, that was at uni. <laughs> I was, we, we both went to um, Aberystwyth and when I was in my second year, I had the room nearest the front door of my house and I would answer it for Jack, who was coming to see one of my flatmates, and that's how we met. And yeah, we, we both, we, yeah, we're both Who fans. Um, we got in really with well, McCoy was was he your doctor he was my doctor McCoy, McCoy's my doctor but I do have vague memories and this is being very specific of watching the five doctors anniversary repeat so I remember I that I do remember that but yeah McCoy was when I actually became a fan so yeah. season 24 was yeah my in season yeah. 24 yeah, and, and I remember, you know, being nine going on ten, waiting for season 27, mm. 
And I'm still waiting. Yeah, yeah I never came. Say, yeah. <laughs> nine going on ten, going on eleven, going on fifteen. And Those so wounds have so not healed yet, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, but tell, um, well, before you go on, I've got a uh, season twenty-four. That is one that is now regarded by a lot of people as one of, if not the worst season ever. And yeah, I, but, but but when like you're the, seven, the of, go on. Yeah, I was going to say when you are a seven-year-old. Sylvester, it was a children's program, and uh, yeah, Sylvester McCoy. When you're seven, it was utterly captivating. When I went back at uni, I got, I, I, I bought, and I was very pleased and excited. I got Paradise Towers on VHS, and I, so I sat down to watch with my flatmate Paul. And I remember afterwards taking out of the VCR just by my index finger and thumb not wanting to touch it i was that disappointed because i loved oh. the i loved the cleaners when i was seven and then you know 12 yeah. years later oh. whatever it was it was like oh bloody hell was that yeah but yeah, yeah but, but now do you watch paradise towers now and do you still feel disappointed with it or have yes. you gone back again oh you do yeah i think it could have been such a great a really really good jg ballard ripoff yeah. Rather than a really terrible one, it could have been fantastic. Yeah. Do you know what though? I see because I'm so much older. I hated Paradise Towers when I first saw it, but since then I've grown to absolutely adore it. It could, thing, thing is though, it's a really near miss in terms of it could have been a really really great satire and invest, an examination of social housing in the eighties, and it wasn't. You know, but yeah. really nearly, it, it's one really light rewrite away from being a really, really great Doctor Who story. And I think the one thing that's great about it is the fact it's really the start of where Andrew Cartmel starts to get his claws into the show. Because up until then, a lot of the season has sort of been commissioned by John Nathan Turner because Eric Sayward had disappeared and Andrew Cartmel didn't really have a handle on season two. And although although it's not great, you you can smell 2000 AD. Yeah, in it. it, and obviously the whole you know there's a huge big you know Alan Moore influence in from you know from that season on. I mean, Ace is pretty much Halo Jones, oh. which is why I would have loved to see season twenty seven, kind of kind of see where they took would would have taken her. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there is definitely there's an awful lot of Alan Moore in uh, McCoy's era. Oh, yeah. yeah, very much so. Well, Andrew Cartmel, he, you know, he's obviously a big fan, isn't he? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was his huge influence on his Doctor Who. And quite right, and too. And I think that yeah. made for... Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. that made for a really refreshing change at the end of the 1980s. I know a lot of people don't like it. I think it's fantastic, really. It's what it, it got... Three I mean, years now. It got really good, especially the last two years, because suddenly you, mm. you hit Remembrance. Uh, okay. Silver Nemesis, not so much. But Happiness Patrol, if it had been a location shoot, like you know, Red, you know how Red Dwarf shoots in shot in factories. Yeah. If they'd done, if Paradise Towers, sorry, no, no, uh, the Happiness Patrol had looked less studio based and they'd filmed it in an oil refinery, mm. would have worked. It's like Greatest yeah. Show in the Galaxy. Looks Greatest amazing Show is brilliant. They, yeah. <clears throat> they didn't have a studio, so they pitched up a tent, and yeah. it looks amazing. Yeah. So, I love all that. I love you know. Do you I know, love, you know, do you know what? The, <laughs> go, go for it go for I'm it trying to get a word in edgeways <laughs> I was only going to say I actually <laughs> Happiness Patrol again because of the age I was hated it at the time now I love it and one of the things I really like about it is the fact that it's in the studio because it reminds me of something like Kafka's The Trial it has that yeah. sort of metaphorical quality being in the studio I think if they'd have been out on location I think it might have lost 
some of what made it special. Yeah, you may have a point, but it, it is, it's incredibly theatrical and tonally it's a real shock to the rest yeah. of Doctor Who, basically. But it's, it's such an angry... Yeah, it's, yeah. It, I love the fact that they got it through and the BBC broadcast it. That and it's, it's, I, it's, I don't, I don't yeah. think the BBC were paying attention at that point. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, which yeah. is, you know, oh, Doctor Who's yeah. on. Yeah, fine, get on with it. But yeah, no, it's, it's a really great well, angry they, piece. Well, they should have got the feelers when Paradise Towers went out, and so, and they should have sat up <laughs> and started taking notice, <laughs> but they didn't. So go on, I've got to find out then. Uh, and this is putting you on the spot, but I want each of you to name your favourite Doctor Who story. Why not, Rob? Oh, go yeah. for it. Ooh, okay. You know, I, I, there are many I could mention, but and it feel I feel almost embarrassed to do it, but I'm going to stick with the McCoy era. Why not? Ooh, yeah, okay. Ooh, hang on, it's a, on this, this is story. difficult. I'll, I'll name three <laughs> and then try and dump two of them. Okay, Remembrance of the Daleks. Okay, go on then. Um, yeah. Ghostlight. Oh yeah, I'll on. name yeah. four. Okay, survival is wonderful. Yeah. Curse of Fenric's really wonderful too. I have to oh, I have to dump three of them now. Yes, you've made a you've made oh, a worse for yourself. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna oh ah, rem- rem- remembrance. I'll change my mind tomorrow, but yeah, rem- let's say rem- remembrance of the Daleks for the moment. I tell you why though. Well, one thing. One of the things I loved yeah, about on, the Seventh on. Doctor's costume was that it's so much like a school uniform. So when you're a seven-year-old and you pretty much dress like he does and it's set in a school, that's pretty wonderful. Anyway, yeah, that's me. That's me. And he's like the coolest school kid in existence. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Or not, if you're not of the age to appreciate him. Okay it's... then, Jack. Name Jack, your favourite Doctor Who story. Oh, okay, uh, right, so McCoy era, uh, Remembrance or Curse of Fenric? You don't have to go McCoy era. Uh, no, it was of, of my era. Oh, fine, okay. Um, but I was actually, when I asked it, I was hoping you'd both name a McCoy story, but I didn't specify it. Yeah. Hmm, I don't know, I think it depends on the mood I'm in, but it... Oh, That's cheating. No, yeah, you can't, yeah. Uh, okay, I'm going to say, just by a slight pinch, it's going to be Remembrance over Curse of Fenric. Um, okay. but I also rate Empty Child, The Doctor Dances, um, yeah, yeah. I love Stolen Earth and Dreams I think the, I think Stephen Moffat takes a lot from the Sylvester McCoy era, you know? Do you know what? I think he actually does. Explain. Yeah, he, he, see, the, Andrew Cartmel had this thing where as long as the story was strong enough and made sense, and as long as it had some relevance, he didn't mind it being really cartoony in that graphic novel way. And Stephen yeah. Moffat seems to do the same kind of thing. People call it the grown-up fairy tale, the adult fairy tale. Mm. It's not really an adult fairy tale. Stephen Moffat's thing is more sort of the classic children's literature, things like Peter Pan. But, yeah. but he does it in a way that feels... Of a piece with the sort of Andrew Cartmel years, if you ask me. It, and the, the end of the most recent season, it did get very Lungbarrow, actually, if we're going to bring... I suppose Well, it did, not even yeah. new adventures, but, you know, what was going to be... It was going to be an episode of uh, 
Series twenty six. It was you know they they they, yeah, they, chick, they, they chicken yeah. they chicken no no they chickened out and made it into into ghost oh, yes of course they did yeah. didn't they yes yeah. but yeah no yeah. the final season it gets very lung barrow. I was I was really hoping in the last season for name check lung barrow just name check lung barrow and they they didn't but mm. I was kind of <laughs> hoping I was hoping it would get a mention in there somewhere you know Predodian chapter to the Sigma House of Lung Barrow just get it in there and they didn't but oh wow yeah I know I know there's still time there's still time. Right, I'm going to name my favourite McCoy story and surprise the pair of you, but I've already mentioned it. It's the Happiness Patrol. It is my oh, favourite okay. of the McCoy stories. Oh. Yeah, I just really go for that sort of symbolic, metaphorical approach. I just, yeah, it just yeah. really hits a chord with me these days. Like I say, it didn't when I was younger, but it does now. Anyway, let's move on and talk about what we've come here to talk about. And... Well, before we get into what the Wireless Theatre Company is and what the secret of spring Jack is and why people should listen to it and why it's relevant for us to talk about it right now, let's talk about how you... T- because, I mean, I'm assuming that this came up by the pair of you coming up with the idea together in some way rather than one of you saying, hey, do you want to come and work on my thing? So what I'm really asking is for you two to sort of Tell me how you two came to be a sort of writing, producing, whatever partnership in the first place. Did this, does this go back to university? It goes, well, there is, there is a chronology to this. Oh. Go on then. Yeah. Glare at me and like correct me if I get it wrong. Okay. But, you, you start. Okay. You get bought book. Spring Hill Jack in book. Well, actually, there's one story we've never ever told anyone. Okay. Oh, tell uh, it to uh, me now. Okay. I, I, even I don't know what you're about to say. But anyway, you'll you know within two seconds. We've known each other about a year. We were down the pub in Aberystwyth. Yeah. And we started talking about Bond. Yeah. And then we said, oh, let's write a James Bond film. Shut and up. This, this is embarrassing already. <laughs> should, be, should be quiet with that now. Okay. Yeah. So our, our first attempt to write, uh, actually writing together was to th- uh, just thrash out a James Bond. Okay. Okay. Well, we, okay. In that case, we had form very naively thinking Barbara Rockley would give a shit what we thought. Anyway, so <laughs> we did that. Then. You get bought book with Springhill Jack in. You have idea to do TV series of Springhill Jack, which is very like the X-Files. Yes. You write thing. You leave thing in drawer. You tell me. We talk Springhill Jack. Many years later, 2007, we're having lots of mojitos mm-hmm. and Mexican food, but mainly mojitos. And the Wireless Theatre Company has just started. Mm-hmm. And I don't want... I want to write something, but nothing... Cheap. I want something with costumes and explosions and chases and spooky MacGuffins. And I say, Jack, let's do something like that with Springheel Jack. Mm-hmm. You say yes. We dust write, it off. Yeah, we take it out. We we take the idea of a detective spending his entire life investigating Springheel Jack, and that's it. Then we then Marielle at Wireless Theatre says yes, good idea. So then we we write. Um, we we write Springhill Jack for Wireless Theatre, mm. and we did and the, we ch- yeah. Oh, sorry, carry on. Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to break in at this point. Did the pair of you at this point then have form and have a background in writing and producing and audio or anything? Yeah. Well, I'd made like an, a no budget film, um, and I was sick of writing, having been forced to write cheap things. And we'd you'd uh, written a play I'd which I directed. A, I'd written a stage play uh, in two thousand and six called Frozen. And if you know the Wireless Theatre Company, that will ring a bell because it's pre-Disney. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, just going to bring that out. <laughs> yeah. um, but go. basically, uh, Mario uh, 
Ronaker Temple, who is the artistic director of Wireless Theatre, I knew at the time, she came to see the play, and then she came the next night, and then she came back about a week later. I should say, you were directing the play. You directed it, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. 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 Uh, so, Marielle came on a third visit with her mum, and then she came a fourth time. Wow. And on that fourth visit, she turned around and said, I'm thinking of setting up this audio production company. I love the play. Could we adapt it? Would you adapt it for us? Can we turn it into a, an audio production? And that's where she pitched the idea of wireless and how it would work. So go on then. Before we get back into Spring Hill, tell me about wireless. Tell me how it was set up and why it was set up and who's involved with it. Okay, so it's... Fa- Sorry. I, just, I was just I was going to add, because this is uh, quite an interesting story anyway, I think. It was set up by Mario Ronica Temple in 2006. Uh, basically, what happened was she went to East 15 Drama School, and all the accredited drama schools have an annual competition for their final year students called the Carlton Hobbs. And they throw up the two best students... And the prize is, if you win, you get a six-month contract with the BBC Actors Company doing radio drama with them. And Marielle got through to the final. She didn't win the competition, and she then spent the next couple of years writing to the BBC, asking for an audition as a Carlton Hobbs finalist. And she, she she couldn't get heard. So after a while, she thought about setting up her own company, and she batted some ideas back and forth. And... Initially, she talked about doing something completely different. So when she came to see the play, and she said, I've had this idea. I love audio. And what I want to do is I just want to build a website. We'll record radio drama and radio comedy. It'll all be new writing. and It'll all, you know, all work for all the people that we know. Because we worked together at the London Dungeon at the time. Mm. And there were so many talented people there that were just slogging away, trying material, but had no outlet. So... She thought, well, if we could record, just book a studio, record some of this, mix it, turn it into an MP3 and use the podcast method of distribution, um, rather than doing this type of podcast we're doing now or distributing yeah, yeah. music, um, she said, well, why not, uh, why not audio drama? Why not audio comedy? So just by sheer happenstance, Frozen was on at the Etc. Theatre in Camden. She came along. She loved it. She asked me to do a rewrite of it uh, for audio, which I'd never done. But fortunately, the designer of that show was Andrew Swan, and he'd worked for Big Finish. Right. So as a result, he was able to give me a lot of guidance on how to adapt it. So basically, it was sort of a a massive crash course in turning things into audio. Um, And we worked through it. And actually, the rewrites went so well... I then adapted a new stage play version out of the audio version. So there are now th- three versions of that play floating around. But the audio version was a, a key thing. And and Disney have got a version too, I hear. That, yeah, but that's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that that's that's how the introduction to wireless began. It was sort of a, a little bit of a alignment of stars, if you like. I, I wrote this play. Mariel liked it. She was setting up the company. The, I just happened to know someone who'd worked for Big Finish who was able to help me through. Yeah, it, it's a good time to get involved in a production company before they've really developed any kind of vetting process. Yes. So, yeah, <laughs> for any writers who want to get into anything, yeah, that's the point to do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing about wireless is, it's kind of, from what I gather about it, it's kind of a sort of 
but sort of a collective which kind of tries to focus on new writers, new actors, or, you know, fairly new writers and actors. They're kind of giving them a leg up into the industry, but it's also kind of sponsored by established stars too. So yeah. you have this really nice mixture. And Spring Hill Jack, as we'll discover when we get there, is, is kind of this really nice mixture of new voices and recognisable voices. I mean, one of, the, one of the lovely things that happened very early on was about eight or nine months into all this new material going on was that Prunella Scales showed an interest because uh, Marielle sent out loads of letters and right. she was prepared to come in. And she had such a good time. She said, oh, can I bring Tim next time? As in Timothy West, her husband. And we said, right. yes. Yeah. And I believe the actual conversation went, uh, Prunella Scales asked Marielle, oh, you have got some plays for us to do. And Marielle went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Put the phone down and went, I need some plays for them to do. <laughs> so she picked up the phone and she rang me and said, could you write a play for them? Which I did. And that was Seasons. And there was another one uh, written by Stuart Price, which was called On Three. And uh, because they put their weight behind it and they said very, very nice things, that started to open up floodgates to these occasional... Uh, names that come through yeah just, and when we know. did get to doing spring Hill jack um we had a wish list for who we wanted to play the the baddie in the first season and julian glover was at the top of the list but at the time i thought you know it's never gonna happen but it's it's a julian glover part so we wrote it as a julian glover part yeah and he went and said we offered it to him and he said yes so that was just like you know then it was wonderful and suddenly the rest of the cast started to take it seriously which was good you know <laughs> and it's the same thing like uh the uh, we've had a production with stephen fry in it and it was written for stephen fry and we thought oh well, let's find out and yes actually he read the script loved it and said yes i'll see you in four months at this time i'll be there so wow well i've got to go off on a bit of a tangent then and just talk about audio drama in general were you both seasoned on like the plays on Radio 4 and things like Big Finish and things like that. Because, Jack, you talked a minute ago about having to adapt Frozen from stage to audio and then you say you've adapted it back again. What are the problems that adapting something for audio presents? And what are the things you've got to look out for? Because I've got to tell you, just before we go in and talk about this, one of the things, because I review audio plays fairly frequently and one of the things i'm often listening out for is is this piece of dialogue a piece of exposition because there are no pictures or does it actually work as a piece of dialogue and i've got to say spring Hill jack is really refreshing in that you never seem to fall into those traps well, so tell me about the process of writing for audio and how you came to understand it well, actually, actually, I will say, you know, um, how you handle exposition is the key thing with writing audio drama. Yeah. It's not too different from writing for the screen, but the handling of exposition. Let's say you've got a, a detective inspector and the sergeant walking through the woods past the forensics and they've got a body to look at. You know, um, it's a thing you see in cop shows a lot, but, you know, you have, you have to do that with the minimal of exposition because we we all know the semiotics of these things so the the yeah, the, tr the trick the exposition is entirely the the hardest thing and the most important thing to get right the other thing actually, i was just going to say because you've oh, got to no. tell the person who's listening where you are and what's happening 
and you can't without, show them without yeah. but without telling them where they are and without telling them what's happening exactly yeah 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 the other yeah the, i mean the other thing is transitions you know mm. scene transitions because you, you want to uh because i mean transitions are so vitally important and you don't want to i mean a lot of radio 4 stuff I mean, I like radio. I love Radio Four, but a lot of it is very fade out at end of scene, fade back up into next scene, and that's right. not how music works. Mm. It's not how good audio drama should work. So you know, you've, got to, you've always got to be thinking: how does each scene move into the next elegantly and gracefully? Whether it's a verbal cue that passes over, or whether it's a sound effect comparable or completely opposite mm. sound effect dissolve, all that kind of stuff. And it, it's not. It's not stuff that hasn't been done before. I mean, people like Dirk Maggs, who are brilliant, and they've been doing that for years. Well, that's the same, but I mean, Dirk Maggs is probably the best person at it. I mean, I I was never really a huge fan of audio drama. Um, I mean, I grew up with Hitchhikers, and uh, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds is a, mm. it's a prog rock album musical, essentially, but still, you know. But um, yeah. a lot of... British. I mean, thanks to the BBC, audio drama was kept alive for the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st. Um, in America, it barely exists anymore because there's no public money for it. So the BBC kept it going. Mm. But technically, and in terms of production, a lot of BBC stuff, I still feel really disappointed by the lack of ambition in terms of production design. So with Spring Hill Jack, we wanted do to do think... something much more cinematic. Sorry, yeah, you should... go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was only going to say, on the subject of the BBC keeping it alive, but then do you think they kind of fell into habits and never really progressed beyond those habits? To an I, extent, because obviously I, to I mean, an extent, it's individuals working there. Yeah. yeah, to an extent I do think so. However, the way we thought we could do Spring Hill Jack, had, we realised, you know, it had already been done by Dirk Maggs sort of 15, 20 years earlier. Particularly during the, uh, like the radio, when uh, Radio 5 used to do drama. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. A lot of the early 90s stuff. I'll actually to, uh, bring this slightly on topic. One of the best pieces of audio I heard come out of Radio 5 was uh, Paradise of Death, the Doctor Who yes. audio yeah, 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 with John yeah. Pertwee. I mean, the, I can still remember the cliffhanger to episode one because it's so beautifully designed. That, it just flows for you. It just flows uh, beautifully. The transitions are wonderful. You know, so... You know, the, I think in the early 90s, that Radio 5 uh, drama department were actually sort of heading that way and really playing around with the form and doing some wonderful, wonderful stuff. Yeah. But maybe there was a, maybe there was a thing, well, okay, that's fine, that's for Radio 5. And now every radio station is sort of uh, put into its own box. So Radio 1's there for contemporary music, Radio 2 for say what 20 30 years back you know yeah but it, it was radio one who did the audio version of american world in london and stuff like that wasn't mm. it and, the, and independence the, day uk independence day uk and the trial of superman was that a radio one thing as well oh, but yeah, it's, all, it's all dirt mags that isn't it yeah but yeah it's yeah that's the thing this um yeah really ambitious sound design has been there but I think it's it's either expensive or time consuming. But in his case, he does it all himself anyway. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So you, well, let's talk about Spring Hill then. And okay. this is the interesting thing about Spring Hill is it is inspired by and to a certain extent based upon a real legend. 
And you oh, yeah. even include specific things that have actually happened. And you've built a story around them. So going back to when you were talking about, you know, when you sat down and wrote this thing, and then you dusted it off and kind of rewrote it again. Uh, how? Did, well, what was the process of thinking, okay, let's take something that actually may have happened. You know, obviously, yeah. probably didn't in quite the way the legend's gone down. What was the process of spinning a story around that? And what were the what were the things you really wanted to include? And how did you manage to make it sort of fit? Okay, well, at the time, spring in 2007, late mm. 2007, we had the idea to actually go actually do it, roll up our sleeves and get writing. Um, Spring Hill Jack had appeared in stuff. He was more obscure than he is now, but he'd always been portrayed essentially as steampunk Batman. No one had ever actually taken the history of it. And your original idea, the, the kernel of it that we kept, was a detective spends his life hunting Spring Hill Jack. But then what we decided to do was, well, let's go back to the original history and look at the actual case that mm. began in 1837. It was the winter of 1837-38 was the original case. But Spring Hill Jack essentially... Last his reign lasted from right across the Victorian era to 1904. Mm. So all we wanted to do, which had never been done at that point, was let's actually do the history mm. and be bound by the history of Spring Hill Jack. Which, which was easier back then, because there's a lot more that's come out since we've done the series. But back then, I think the Wikipedia page was what? What? There was, there was, there was, there was 20, 20 bullet yeah. points. There basically. was, yeah, the scant stuff on Wikipedia, which wasn't <laughs> much helpful. But there was, um, at the time, there was Peter Hainings, the great Peter Haining of 25 Glorious Years yes. fame. Wow. His, his <laughs> book, The, um, The Legend and Bizarre Crimes of Spring Hill Jack, which is quite an unreliable history of Spring Hill Jack, but that was useful. Um, but also back well, then. Well, you wouldn't expect it to be reliable if it came from Peter Haining, sure. Well, exactly, exactly. But we also had at the time, because at that point, the, the, the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. There's some of it, obviously some of it is documented, because a lot of the Spring Hill Jack stuff did happen. It went to trial, and, um, back in 2007, the Times Online archive was free. Mm. So all the trial stuff of Thomas Milbank we have in series one, is actual dialogue taken from transcripts of his trial for being Spring Heel Jack. And he really was wow. let off because he couldn't breathe blue fire, as Jane Lopsop said he could. So a lot of the history is absolutely true. Mm. Um, he did, there were, um, accounts of, um, a ghost at Aldershot Barracks scaring the sentries and all that kind of stuff. In fact, um, you know, the whole phenomenon of phantom attackers going under the name, which was invented by the press in 1838 of Spring Hill Jack, covered the country. I mean, most of the stuff is absolutely real to that extent. Um, what he did do in terms of just because Spring Hill Jack, the Spring Hill Saga is an adventure series and Spring Hill Jack is a spooky MacGuffin, but because the nature of Spring Hill Jack has changed so much over the years. He was a ghost, a bear, the devil himself. He was a folk hero. He was a, a bandit and a vigilante. But and then a 14, man who fought Napoleon spies. Yeah, he fought Napoleonic spies in the uh, Penny Dreadfuls of the nineteen sorry the eighteen sixties to nineties, I think. And then in, in the nineteen sixties, Fortean Times got hold of him and made him. Uh, an extraterrestrial. So simply because there's so many theories about what Jack was over the 100 and however many years it was, uh, suddenly you've got an awful lot of different genre opportunities because yeah. you can go, you can go horror, you can go supernatural, you can investigate 
him in pop culture, and then you can you can go the sci-fi route as well. well it's kind and of it's a, all built in. He, he's kind of a supernatural Jack the Ripper kind of character. Not so much in the murders, but insofar as nobody really actually knows, do they? No, no. In fact, one of the Jack the Ripper letters is signed spring Jack, the Whitechapel murderer. And did that come before he got the name Jack the Ripper? It may have done, yeah. So there could have been a bit of cross-pollination between yeah, the yeah, two yeah. identities yeah, I anyway. Think that, so, yeah. I think there may have been, but yeah. I, I could easily be corrected on that, but I think that is the case. What is a Ripperologist when you need one? Well, exactly. <laughs> so uh, so uh, you've said you've decided to tell... Well, I mean, kind of the, the, the three series of spring Jack kind of tell the story of the Victorian age. As well... Yeah, that was kind of, that was the opportunity it gave us because it's one phantom attacker, one bogeyman, London's greatest supernatural bogeyman, and he lasts the entire Victorian era. So it was an opportunity. If we can make this the story of not just one man's life looking for him, Mm. but if we can make this a story that spans the entire Victorian age, then we can look at we can look at the Victorian era. Yeah. Because one yeah. of the things we said early on was uh, we, we try to get all the eras right because Queen Victoria's reign was uh, 61 years? Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, 64 years, sorry. So you have <laughs> a massive amount of cultural shifts, the birth of London, London growing as a metropolis, and the way the story broke down meant that it very, very neatly dropped in and structured yeah, us to explore yeah. these changes. I mean, one of our key texts in writing it was um, Peter Ackroyd's London, the biography. So um, it really lent itself in the first series, kind of treating London, Lon- it was London as hell, essentially. Series two was London as theatre. So our, even our image systems changed between series of how we'd portray the city. And the third series was all about technology. So it become, uh, it became about London as the most advanced city on the planet. Yeah. Cause to begin with, you know, he, it was, uh, it was the city of London and the surrounding villages like Lavender Hill and Barnes yeah. and Putney and all these things. So. Yeah, that that was great. It was kind of being able to do. Yeah, it, it's not the London you know from Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. It was. Um, well, it's it pre was, all that by about it, fifty years. Exactly, it, really, exactly. When you start. It's, yeah, it's that, I mean, you've got to say to me, for me, that was one of the fascinating things about listening to that first series, because hardly ever anybody goes back quite so far to set their sort of yeah. Victorian detective sort of type genre thing. Yeah, and it, Oliver Twist was being, being serialised at the time, so it's that period. It's extremely, extremely early. Um, yeah, in fact, if, the thing we keep forgetting is the fact the series actually begins in 1821. Yeah, yeah. For, for, for credits a... um, the, at the opening, so we, you know, we leapfrog all the way back to the end of the Georgian era, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and that brings a, I was going to say as well, um, just before I go on, and one of the things about the, the plays is politics is through it right from the start, and it's one of the sort of backbones of the series, but not in an intrusive way. Yeah, it's, you can't get away from that. You can't get away from class, especially at that period, especially when you're, um, your, your hero, your main character is a police officer of the newly invented Police, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, a blue lobster, you know, he's a, he's a, he's, he's, a, he's an original peeler, you know, back in the days when, you know, on a Friday night you would just beat up the police force, you know. Um, <laughs> so the police were a brand new invention in the late eighteen thirties, and 
um, yeah, it was essentially, you know, you st- I think you pretty much still had Rotten Burrows and all that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, Cause there was a, it was a series on, uh, around about the time we were writing as well. Did you, uh, both Street Runners? Yeah, with Ian McDermott. Yes. Yeah. And Ian Glenn. Was, was, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that explored the birth of the police and the way all the, um, sort of political and criminal structures worked before their arrival. So it's a nice little thing to think that you're seeing the end of those old, criminal and legal structures on the way out and it's it sort of like i still think the tentacles of that are still felt in the first series yeah uh, but it is, in, it is interesting that you know it's only by the time our main character is in his 60s that he got the vote as well so it's you can do you can play with all that kind of stuff too yeah you know? and all of that sort of informs the drama but it doesn't overpower it which is one of the nice things is that there's all these Throughout there, because I should explain for the listener that this has been going on for six years. There have been three series, each of three episodes, roughly of half an hour's duration each. So it's not like there's masses and masses of stuff if anybody wants to go back and try the whole thing. But the whole thing fits together like a really nice jigsaw puzzle that tells this really nice story across not so much not so great a space of time that it's daunting to think about it but you manage to squeeze an awful lot in with a lot of with a lot of fairly short scenes where you get through a lot of ideas in a fairly short space of time and it's one of the things that sells that is the characters because the characters are so well drawn you only need to hear from somebody like Benjamin Disraeli for 30 seconds in an episode and you know exactly what's going on in his head and you know exactly what kind of a person he is and that informs what's going on in the rest of the story. Yeah, with the final series, because it's like we got to do something in the last series, as you should, I think, which is, you know, in terms of the threat that your heroes are up against is something, you know, bigger than anything they've come up before. So it was yeah. in, the, in the final series, it was lovely to get to bring Empire into it mm. and to have... Queen Victoria mentioned throughout as, you know, as, cause she's obviously, she's the queen. And then fine, ultimately you get to meet her. But, um, but yeah, having, having Benjamin Disraeli as, you know, as a character in it was just a wonderful opportunity. Cause I went to Hewenden where he lived. It's National Trust property now. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that was a nice bit of research into him. And just in terms of audio, in, in terms of sound design, he was really into peacocks. <laughs> you know, he, you know, so so it's like, yeah, we definitely, we definitely need some peacocks in there for for Benjamin at some point. But um, yeah, because the final series is kind of our Bond film, mm. so he kind of becomes, in a funny way, the kind of the de facto M uh-huh. of the piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the kind of thread that's been going on throughout, anyway, because your hero is kind of. I mean, it starts with a a sort of prologue with him as a child, like you're saying, say in eighteen twenty one. But as soon as you come forward, straight away, he's being prodded around this way and that. And he's never, until the end, he spends a lot of time not being really the master of his own destiny, doesn't he? No, completely. He's, um, he's a working class guy. He's got his job. He's a, he's a copper. He's very good. But he's, you know, he's where he is. And he's manipulated by um, people above him. And he's... He's like Dirty Harry, he gets a shitty end of the stick all the time, you know, and mm. he's, um, yeah, he's not, he doesn't have the best of luck, mm. you know, really, but he's just, he's just got this destiny, um, and he's got, he's got this obsession which he has to see through. And it was, it was, it was really lovely, um, having a character who you could take through his entire life on just the mm. one story. 
I remember at the time of writing it, I was also watching Smiley's Pe- the Alec Guinness Smiley's yeah, People yeah. a lot. It was just like, you know, so, so I just love the fact that um, you've got old George Smiley with like one final chance to get Carla yeah. after being, you know, humiliated by Bill Hayden. But, you know, but you're always quietly, doggedly staying in there despite all the opposition and ultimately kicking ass. Mm. Yeah, so that was fun. Yeah, because one of, one of the first things we did was actually we, we wanted to be very clear about who Jack was, how it was, how it was going to end. Because we went, yep, yeah, we're going to get all the way through this. You watch. Bit nice. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, yeah. You know, we we well, we knew how it was going to go from beginning to end, yeah. right off the bat. Writing it was fairly simple, and even even the recording process was really simple. Post production was where the wheels came off. Yeah, <laughs> so, so. that's when we started to break people, basically. <laughs> so I think so. That's that's when it all got very slow. But yeah. Um, but yeah, we, but in terms of the story, we we always knew exactly where it was going. But the thing is, the, the what the the thing is, it's actually what we realise now. It's a privilege to get to the end of your story. We wrote this, we thought, yeah, it'll all go fine. But actually, to get to the end and actually be able to tell the whole story is just, just brilliant and wonderful. And phew, yeah, it's, 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 it can happen. You know, there are so many stories that never get finished, particularly on recorded medium. So we got there. Well, let's so. face it, you started six years ago so it's taken its time and it could have come undone at any time between now and then couldn't it yeah well i, I just got got i started to worry that hang on the the story of making this is starting to mirror the story so yeah we have to yeah we have to finish it but we did we did um so yeah right i've got to ask two questions about the story and one of them i'll save for a moment but your lead character jonah smith yeah he's not a typical hero, and he's, well, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, he's kind of, let's say, terse. He's not an attractive character, really, from the outside. But the chap who plays him, Christopher Finney, is that right? That's right, yes. yes. He manages to take this character who's not an attractive character and play him in not an attractive way and still imbue that character with so much, I don't know, for want of a better word, charisma, that you are desperate to follow his story, even though he doesn't come across as particularly the kind of person whose story you might think you want to follow. Does that make sense? And was that deliberate? Do you know what? It wasn't actually deliberate. It's just that simply the condition, what what we aimed to do, which was put a character in a situation where he had to, first of all, become obsessed obsessed with discovering who Spring Hill Jack was. Yeah, yeah. Then change his attitude to Spring Hill Jack when he learnt more. And then have, you know, more and more bad things happen to him, forcing him to a situation where he essentially had no choice but to either top himself or see things things through. Um, as, As the creators of that character... What we, what we put him through as the gods of that universe was horrible. We, we gave him a terrible, terrible life. But he actually really just did the best with the terrible, terrible lot we dealt him, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, I, we never, we, we, we never sat down and thought, let's, let's make um, a, a gruff, terse, grumpy character. We we actually we we, I, we I think we've overstated that a bit. But no, no, you, know you have. I, mean? I don't yeah. think you. No, you and you. You. I don't. I don't believe you have. But we, we we. I think what we did. We created a good man 
and then just made the conditions of his life really, really tough. Yeah. We, 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 we don't permit him happiness. Oh. Um, because we need, we need to create conditions where he needs to see the whole thing through to the end across his entire life from yeah. being yeah. an eight, you know, a 25 year old constable through to a 65 year old dying old man. Yeah. So he's, a, he's a good man doing the best he can with the terrible, terrible things we've done to him. And that, so, yeah. that was just from a, uh, practical point of view, another one of the reasons why we wanted Chris Finney to do this yeah. right from the very, very start um, was because I, I knew his work as a voice actor. And when you're writing down on paper, must play 25 to 65, there are very few actors who can do that and do it well without sounding like an old man. You've got a voice. <laughs> yeah. um, and it was like, I, I played you Chris is Real, yeah. didn't I? Uh, ooh, back back in the car shortened days. Mm. Um, and we went, yeah, let's let's have a chat. So I remember uh, having a chat with Chris, pitching it on the phone to him, and uh, fortunately he said yes. Yeah, because and... what you you are asking the pit the pitch for the character is we're asking you to play someone from twenty five to sixty five. That's the deal, and yeah. and sit across three series. Yeah, yeah. Because if if we lost him at any point, which can happen, could, ha- could shows, easily have happened. Actually, again, yeah. Like, oh, what do you do? You know, but um, yeah. You could have got Julian Ryan Tut in. Because <laughs> I don't know whether you're aware of this. <laughs> they have a fairly similar timbre in their voice. We could have done. Yeah. <laughs> just, just we, we've used, well, we have worked with what Julian Ryan Tut. So, yeah. Oh, right. Wallace well, well, has used him before. So, yeah. But, you, but, don't, don't but Christopher Chris Finney, he's yeah. great. But, he really... He really... Oh, he, he, he is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> And I don't think, very, actually, very I've, ma- I've made that joke, but I, I've, I've heard Julian Reintert in other things as well. And I I don't think he could have done it as Christopher Finney does it. I think Christopher Finney really got that character. He's, he's very prepared to ground himself, but also embrace silliness, which is yeah. a very, very special skill. Uh, he's kind of like a Doctor Who skill in a, in a, in a, you know, in terms of yeah, acting. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, uh, Chris has also been, um, he, he's done Wizards vs. Aliens and he's done, uh, In the Flesh in season, series two. Um, he's done bits and pieces, but he's also, uh, the Vimto guy. He does. Yes, he is. The fruits. He? Yeah. Well, he does two of the fruits, I should say. He's the, he's the Northern Crate and the Russian Raspberry. So, and he, and, he, and he got both parts. He took the, the story goes that he got both parts because um, he was messing around in the studio. He was, he was he's from uh, from Chester, so he's uh, a, a northern lad. But he said he just filled in and started doing the uh, the Eastern European accent as well. And I think someone someone who was a savvy operator went hmm. Two yeah. actors for the price of one. So yes, he does uh, two of the Vimto. It's funny actually when I talk to Chris because I I often forget he doesn't sound like Smith. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a funny thing about working doing anything in post production. You spend more time with the actors than they spend with you. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you you always end up more familiar with them. Like, oh hey, hey mate, we, we, we spent the last you know months together. It's like we have, really haven't, but yeah, it's always a shock when I when I hear his actual accent. Well, it was only what like uh, three months ago you finally met Richard Lightman, who created all the vocals and monster effects on the first series. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've been living with that. 
Spring Hill yeah. for six years. See, post-production is a very weird place to spend lonely. too much time. It's very lonely as well. Lonely. Yeah. And you've, I'm, I take it then that you've done most of that yourselves. Oh, no, no. We've um, used different editors on uh, different series. On the last right. series, though, Jack, you stepped in to do... On the last episode, you you, you, st- you, pi- you really pitched in with a lot of the sound design. Yeah, uh, with Matt Thompson. With so Matt Thompson, yes. Uh, Andrew yeah. Swan uh, did the first series. Yeah, then Benjamin Osborne did series two. Joe Richardson did episodes one, one and two. One and two of the final season. And then, then Matt and Thompson Matt. and you did the final episode. Yeah. Yeah. But even so, you've still got to be across that, and you've still got to be saying yes to all the decisions and all this kind of stuff. Oh yeah, no, completely, completely. I think driving people nuts as well. But but yeah, yeah in terms of in terms of directing it um, and just creating the world, because we wanted we wanted really a really deep sound design, lo- mm. you know, to really create those environments and to really make you feel them. Um, and like, like I said, to get those transitions really nice yeah, and slick yeah. as well. But um, yeah, just really, just in creating that world. I mean, in the in the final series, there's a lot of going through tunnels. And yes. uh, one thing, one wonderful little song that was funny, the Goonies, because in the Goonies, the nature of the different types of tunnel they go to go through varies. So we mm. wanted to kind of you know have them in you know in the tube, then in the sewers, then in mines, then in other stuff. So. That was a real great opportunity, just like doing different types of subterranean environment and that kind of stuff, you know. So you've, you're, you're just constantly thinking about how can we make the scene sound interesting. Hmm. The toughest ones are the ones where it's people in a nice warm study talking politics. Hmm. So you want to, you know, if you can get the sound of a storm outside just to kind of bring it to life, then you do. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's great fun to do, but it's it's it, that's where the time goes. Time, I think. Yeah, yeah, time yeah. consuming. But it's yeah. a lovely. But the thing is, when you get it right, and when you have spent that time, it really sells it. Well, that's the thing. You want it to sound. You want it to sound like a movie. Yeah. If you can. If you yes. can. Yeah. yeah. No, and also, you want it to sound alive. Yes. 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 That's the thing. Like uh, one of. The, should I reveal one of our big tricks? Go on. Reve- reveal one. Now you've said okay. that, you have to. Um, yeah, you can't. Duty bound. Yeah. Okay, um, is actually the use of wildlife and animals. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. Oh, that, yeah. We're get as many animals in as you possibly can. If yeah, you, if you can get an animal in. Reacting. Yeah. And, you know, so when a submarine explodes, the seagulls go mad. Rather than them just be, oh, it's seagulls, so we're by the river and we know it's water. No, when a submarine blows up, they freak out. Yes, of yeah. course. Such a simple thing. And yet, I suppose that's something that a lot of people wouldn't think about, would they? Yeah, so one thing I like in the first series is the fact we've got like chickens in the street just to remind people that this London yeah. is an er- it's an early London because there are farm animals about still, you know, yeah. so that just to make it different because we knew it ultimately would be in the 1870s and it might get a bit more Sherlock Holmesy. Mm. So to really make it the really early London have have chickens in the street. That was it was a little thing, but it was important. There's a, a chicken in the courtroom. Well, yeah, we have we have a chicken in the trial scene as well, which felt a bit Muppets to me. But yeah, we, we yeah, it worked. It worked. Yeah. Hey, gives it some yeah. gives it some verisimilitude of a kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other question I was going to ask about the story, and I'm not going to say why I'm asking this, and you probably shouldn't either, in case people are listening to this podcast do go out and seek out the series. Well, they should. But carry yeah. on. Yes. Well, well, that's why we're doing it. But Children of the Vodjanoi, were you both acquainted with that? Or the TV version, the name of which... Oh, the Nightmare Man. No. What, no. what, what is it? 
Well, I can't say because if I say, I'll give something away. But okay, that was well, no. That, well, I that haven't. felt like an influence. No, no. Oh, okay. No. Only no, we've if... got lo- we've got loads of influences. Yeah, yeah. That's not one of them. Well, mm. I'll explain why after we. Okay. Press stop oh, yeah. Cool. On the cool. Fine. Fine. <laughs> um. So, but there's also I tell you what, in that final episode, there's a bit of Spielberg at play. Mm. And I shan't again say why, because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who's not heard it. But obviously, you're following the story of this guy as he's following the trail of this creature for 60-odd years. And at the end, you're going to have an explanation as to what the creature is. And it's signposted fairly early on, more oh, or it, less yes, it where is, it's going it to go. Yeah, yeah. So then, then again, we're just sort of very loyally follow. We follow the sequence of theories and beliefs about what Spring Hill Jack was. Right, right. And that so we're bound by the history again. We, that's what mm. we always have been. So we, you know, we know what people thought he was when he first turned up, mm-hmm. and you know, ultimately, there's the ultimate theory about what he was that came last. Mm. So we we all all we do with all we've done with the series is um, reflect the people's changing beliefs about what Spring Hill Jack is, and it changed with time. So that's kind of... And I think early on as well, we were talking about the, inf- like, Amblin and some of the oh, wonder- yeah. well, you know, sound design they did on their movies. Yeah, well, Ben Burt and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But in terms of Spielberg, I think there's Spielberg in there right from the start. It's just different Spielberg. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. The thing is, you always try- in terms of your influences, you're always trying to, you know... Originality is just judicious plagiarism, as Voltaire said. <laughs> yeah. But you're, you're always, I think, really, you should try to sweep away your footprints and try to, by all means, be influenced and use your influences, but don't draw attention to them if, if you if you can help it. Yeah. But or alternately, we, yeah, or alternately, if you, if your influences are going to be on your sleeve anyway, then just let them be. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think sometimes it's you know, in, in other ways, I think you you almost can't help but be influenced by people. But um, mm. I mean, Doctor Who is a large influence on it. So so is Quatermass, and obviously Raiders and Indiana Jones in general. Yeah. James I don't Bo- think though James being, Bond yeah, that stuff. Yeah. But I, but being perfectly honest, I didn't think you could listen to the secret of Spring Hill Jack and say right that is X crossed with Y or that <laughs> is particularly Z. Because I, I think it, because of the nature of it, and this goes back to what I was saying about the fact that there's a bit of politics in there and there's all these other things in there, and largely because you're following the story of this single guy, and I suppose this is a little bit Moby Dick, but it doesn't really come across as Moby Dick, but because you're following the story of this one guy, it becomes his story. So the influences are less important because exactly, yeah. they're just the things he has to get through to get through his own story. Yeah, so well, the focus is him, not them. No, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, we do we do have our influences, but um, ultimately, you've just got the what are the needs of your story, and you and you, yeah, you follow yeah, yeah. that. But funnily enough, we did want to kind of bring in some uh, Moby Dick reference at some point. Then we realised we couldn't because. Herman Melville hadn't written it yet. We did want to get. We did want to. Oh, have wow. a, we, I think yeah. we. I think we wanted a white whale quote in series two. Then mm. realised, oh, we can't because mm. yeah, it's, it's pre Moby Dick. But yeah, the Ahab connection was kind of that. What we did think about that because it's almost unavoidable in a way. Yeah. Well, it but, is uh, because yeah. you know, as they say, there are only seven stories, and they've only been told well, 
you know, that's obviously generalising incredibly. But the fact is, you're never going to tell an entirely original story. So oh, you... yeah, yeah, yeah. And, origin and originality is overrated anyway. It's, mm. it's all about, really, it's, we're all bound by the traditions we're working in. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be to be doing that really it's just you know we've got a whole load of stuff that we love and this was just a very good opportunity to sell, to, to tell a certain kind of story yeah and what and what you've done is you've taken a range of different things and you've created a balance and the balance is the unique thing yeah and i think that's um that storytelling and i th i think um it would be nice um, then again, all the stuff we're influenced by did the same thing because yeah. there's there's nothing you can name that again. Am I, am I remembering right? Tradition. When we when we started, do we do we think about actually writing it like it was four parts with like four part serial, and then we knocked it down to three episodes? Well, funny, yeah, actually, in terms of structure, just brings back to Doctor Who a little bit. We were thinking because you know, originally we, we had to decide is each series going to be three or four episodes long. Yeah, and we, you're right. We know we, we did we decide like three yeah, parters we'll... work better. Yeah. But very, very briefly, yeah. could have been written like it was a four-part Doctor Who serial. Yeah, yeah, remember that. Yeah. But then the four-part Doctor Who serials are really only three-part Doctor Who serials, with the middle episode stretched into two anyway most of the time. Exactly. That's I the thing. We didn't want people. We didn't want. That's what we said. We I didn't want exactly people skipping an episode. Basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That was that was that, that was our rationale for doing three-parters. <laughs> yeah, completely. So there you go, it works. So, I mean, I've only we've only mentioned Christopher Finney and mm. Julian Glover in passing. Some of the other people are in it, and there are some recognisable names, and there are some less recognisable names, and there are some great characters. So tell me a little bit about some of the characters you've included and some of the actors you've used. Oh, uh, I... I, I... I'll, I'll go with the easy bit to start with. Go um, easy. The actors, um, there are... So we got we got a wonderful guest mix. So you've mentioned Julian Glover, uh, series two. We've got Nicholas Parsons, uh, Jeremy Stockwell, um, Ashley Maguire, who's uh, just on the uh, just on the David Brent movie and is about to do that play with the rude name at the Hammersmith lyric. <laughs> um, shop, shopping and something else. Uh, series three, there's Matthew Kelly, Jenny Runacre. Katie Manning. Katie Manning, Shane Well, Rimmer. I've got to stop you right yeah. there. Matthew Kelly. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> well, that's a name I don't think anybody who doesn't know any better would associate with drama, let alone audio drama. What's that all about? Well, it was Andrew Shepard who Andrew Shepard who plays Hopcraft um, had worked with Matthew, mm -hmm. and we needed someone to play um, Graf Georg Zumunster, the German ambassador. Yeah, and he was doing educating Re Rita in Richmond of an evening. That's one of the great things about being uh, in terms of your production being based in London is you can you can get people in the studio on their way to the theatre. So like we, Julian Glover. Like Julian Glover. So yeah. So we had an opportunity to cast Matthew Kelly, and we said yes because he he'd gone back to acting, and he he played. He was in um he was in Egypt, and he was in um was it War in the Blood. No, what's the where, the thing he played a serial killer in. Can't remember. Oh, but, uh, but he played Lenny. Yes, he did, a, didn't he? Yeah, yeah he I played Lenny. Yeah. yeah, he he won an Olivier for playing Lenny in Of Mice and Men. So, you know, he's... And he was in um, uh, Waiting for Godot with Ian McKellen, wasn't and he? And he went to drama school with Peter Davison. 
Ah, there you go. So, so yeah, he got back into acting, and um, yeah, we we had an in, and we had a nice little part that wouldn't re- ask require too much of him in terms of studio time. And, and he came in, and it was it was one hour we had him for, and he yeah. was very happy to do it. And so also, kind of... the icing on the cake for him was the fact that uh, he was doing all these scenes with David Benson. Yeah, uh, they used to be very, very good fr- uh, friends back in the fr- like way, way back on the fringe days. Oh, yeah, and they lost touch. And as Matthew was coming upstairs to the studio, I said, oh, you'll be recording with David Benson. And I won't repeat exactly what Matthew said, but it was along the lines of, oh, my God, you're kidding me. And they they really get on. It was like, I don't know, 20 years of friendship was suddenly restored in that one hour session. It was so wow. lovely to watch them bounce yeah. off each other again. So, but yeah, that's, 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 you know, in terms of cast, we've been really lucky with the whole yeah. thing. And also, yeah. they're just the people who are, our names or have become names. Yes. Like every, you know, yeah. very, very blessed that every time we've asked someone who we know is absolutely right, picked yeah. up the phone, they said, yes, we'll do it. But in terms of, in terms of characters though, I mean, um, Jeremy Stockwell in series two plays, um, Oscar, who is this impresario who runs this, um, itinerant theatre company. And obviously, it was a, a, when we were writing it, I wanted Ken Campbell in the mm. thing somewhere. Yeah. Cause, uh, yeah. And he passed away in 2008. So when we were still, before we'd recorded the first series. But Jeremy was, um, one of Ken's many protégés and can do Ken, Ken Campbell said, Ken, he said, Jeremy, you can do me better than I do. So we got Jeremy Stockwell to essentially do Oscar the Impresario as Ken Campbell. So right. just, yeah, that was one of my little things I really wanted in there with some. And Ken. he'd also done Spitting Image as well. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, if, if you listen right to the very, very end of the last episode, we bring back quite a few of our guest stars, uh, for a little sort of Easter egg sequence. Yeah, yeah. And you get, so we, we, we were doubly blessed because we got um, Jeremy Stockwell to play Ken Campbell. We also got him to resurrect his uh, Richard Richard Baker for Richard. a new, for a little news yes. bulletin at the end. And we and you cut together a little just a minute clip with David Benson doing his Kenneth Williams mm. and Nicholas Parsons playing Nicholas himself. Parsons. Yeah. So yeah, that was a cool, that was a cool little. <laughs> And it's just hidden in that last episode. It's a very tiny little Easter egg that if you try, if you tune everything else out on headphones, you can, you can, you can hear it. And that, yeah. and that, that wasn't scripted either. It was just me suddenly thinking, oh, we've got Nicholas Parsons. Could you just say this, please, Mr. Parsons? And then like two weeks later, me making a mental note and then saying, cause, uh, David Benson does a phenomenal one man stage show about Kenneth Williams called Think No Evil of Us. Uh, which has just had its 25th anniversary production at the King's Head Theatre. Wow. And I just, weirdly, we just started joining the dots as we were going. We just recorded this as World Track. And I honestly had no idea whether it would just all cut together and work. But of course, then the hassle was just for what was literally a 12-second joke. I then had to rebuild an entire episode of Just a Minute from scratch using no copyrighted material whatsoever that was owned by the BBC and replicate all the, all the original sounds just, just for something that is an Easter egg and an Easter egg. Yeah, and that no one would ever notice, but yeah. it made us happy to put it in, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I don't so, know. I, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I wasn't, in, I'm not as well acquainted with it, with it as the two of you, but yeah, yeah. When you get to that bit, even if you don't know what's going on, it still works. Oh. Well, I think it does anyway, yeah. Yeah, 
Nice one, Jack. Thank you. Tell me something about... <laughs> this is one of the things that fascinated me going through it, the character of Hopcraft as a kind of... Uh, kind of as an alter ego yeah, to uh, yeah. Smith. Now, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the series, and I'm not going to say why, because the, but other than to say... There's kind of a toing and a froing, and their relationship develops and changes, and I really enjoyed that. Oh no, thank you. Well, it, Hopcroft is just your fairly. Well, he's the eternal shadow character, really. He's you know he's you know Belloc, Saruman the White. He's the he, 006. Mm-hmm. He's the the character who is the negative potential in your hero, and he was great fun to write, but he was very difficult to cast, and it was very difficult trying to find someone who could play him because although he was great fun to write trying to communicate what he was like and who he was was kind of difficult as a director um yeah. but I, weirdly enough um using harry lime as um a sort of a from the an indicator was kind of um was helpful in terms of you know just in communicating what harry lime so what Hopcroft is like, he's the, you know, and Harry Lyme, Orson Welles' character in Third Man, was uh, the key. Yeah, because I was directing Andrew Shepard in a play at the time, which he had written called The Shakespeare Conspiracy. And it was just one of those things, it's like, could you just, would you consider this? And we yeah. sent him the scripts and he had a look and, uh, he, you know, he, he, was, he was on board, incredibly enthusiastic. And then I think after the first recording block, he said, I know Matthew Kelly. And yeah, that, right, was, that yeah. was that was cool. Yeah, but you know, Hopcroft was great fun to write, and um, yeah, he's one of those characters where you know you establish him, and you've got to kind of you know like like once you've established that kind of character, like your hero, you've got to take both of them as far mm-hmm. as you can, really, simply because that 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 type of character exists to throw your protagonist into relief. That's kind of what they do, and that's what the master. Mm-hmm. That's how the master should be written. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and, and I've got to often, say as well, actually, yeah. because of that character being there, the last twenty minutes of the final episode, I was, and I'm not going to say what happens here because, again, I don't want to do a disservice to anybody who's not heard it yet. But when you get to the final episode, you're kind of expecting fireworks, and instead of getting fireworks, what you get instead is it. It kind of you kind of really pull it back without saying anything about how it works plot-wise, you kind of really pull it back, but at the same time, you've pushed it out further than it really should have been expected to go. But then it really pulls back, and actually the the last sort of 20 or 30 minutes becomes a really emotional experience, where instead you may have been led to expect... uh, the kind of um, sort of unraveling you get at the end of a detective novel, or the kind of uh, bums on seats, sort of sweaty bums on seats excitement you might get at the end of an Indiana Jones or a James Bond, you go to a completely different place with it that was totally unexpected and really works, and actually really works because it's an, an experience that connects with you much more as a person than it does as simply somebody who is you know, uh, sort of externally experiencing something exciting, if any of that made any sense. Well, it does to us, because I've seen it. Yeah, I've, yeah. <laughs> I've heard it, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, um, yeah, we, we, we kind of do the big um, action-y endings on the first two series anyway, so we've kind of, but with the with the final series, it was, it's, it is the end of 
a very specific set of character problems and dilemmas. So oh. you you have to go there. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um so it's um and also because it is a story about a man's life by the third series compared to the first two series the third series there are far fewer characters yeah. but the drama is a lot deeper because it because it can go deeper so we chose to go with the dramatic ending where it's about how far can we take the characters rather than how pyrotechnic yeah. Yeah, yeah, an ending we can achieve because we we've, we 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 kind of do, we do that with season one and season two in different ways. Yeah. Um, and at the was, end, yeah. not to spoil it too much, Hopcraft really becomes integral and actually ends up carrying a certain portion of it. Yeah, and I think that's as it is as it should be in a way because um, we kind of you know we explore Hopcraft in season two as the straight pure shadow character yeah yeah bringing him back you've you're duty bound to do much more than that and also it kind of it it require again it's all about smith in the end it's all about your main character hotcraft's journey and his evolution is another way of showing smith's reaction and smith's um attitude to hotcraft's journey again tells you what a good man and what an understanding man smith is yeah um, so it, it's about that, really. And also, it was kind of you know, it was nice to go a bit kind of um, deep, deep and yeah, deep, deep and emotional in the final episode. It's kind of like you know, um, Smiley's people just ends with two old men at Checkpoint Charlie, and mm. you know, Watership Down just end. You know, the cartoon ends with uh, <laughs> yeah, Joss Ackland saying, you know, oh, don't worry, just you know, they'll be okay. Come with me, you're old and tired. You know, it's mm. uh, we wanted we wanted an ending that was. The right ending, the ultimate ending for a story yeah. about a man spending his whole life doing this. Oh. Yeah. So any other kind of ending would have felt like a cheat, really. Well, it reminded me a bit of, um, well, it didn't remind me in terms of how it plays out, but my reaction to it was a bit like the end of State of Play, the Paul Abbott um, series. You've seen it, I haven't. I've seen the remake. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, you must see the television version. It is one of the finest things that's ever been on television. But the ending really wrong-foots you. And so the first time... When when you sit down and watch the last episode, the last yeah. half an hour, kind of leaves you slightly befuddled until about 20 minutes after you finish playing it, when suddenly it clicks in your head and you say, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It couldn't have gone any other way. And it all, and suddenly, because you've just had that 20 minutes to absorb it, it all makes complete sense. And you rewind back to the start and you watch the whole thing through again. Yeah, I have to say, I, do you know, I, if, I, if we were told we had to change the ending, hmm. I've got no idea what else could possibly happen but the ending... We've got. Yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know what we do because the end, the ending, the, the whole, the whole, st the whole thing seeded from the beginning anyway. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I've got no idea how, what else could happen apart from what does happen. It's funny. Well, it's one of those things yeah. where, as a listener, you kind of get through the first eight episodes and you think, right, in the ninth episode, something's going to happen along the lines of, but I've no idea quite what it'll be. Oh. It, but it wasn't that. Oh, but that makes perfect sense. Because you know it Good. has to yeah. go to that place, but the way you get there is 
Um, it's a, uh, it's not a surprise because, like you say, it's signposted all the way through. And I said in my review of the final episode, this is not an episode of surprises, but what it is is it's an episode of emotionally fulfilling the things that it's been set up to get to. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of wanted whatever we did. I wanted our audio drama to make me feel how. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon makes me feel when I listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I didn't know how we'd do it, but I just wanted, yeah, um, the Spring Hill Saga to feel like the Great Gig in the Sky or Eclipse. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember you lending that to me and saying, listen yeah, to this. Listen to this, because that, <laughs> that's how I want us to feel. That's how the audience needs to feel at the end of listening to this. Yeah. They need to feel like they've just listened to Dark Side of the Moon. Mm. Yeah. Well, so, so yeah, I think we, we just, yeah, we went, we take it prog. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, that goes back to where we came in with War of the Worlds. Really. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, but speaking of a journey uh, and how it ends, how do you two feel now that this journey has come to an end? Uh, crystal Head tastes good, doesn't it? Yeah, we had well, we had a bottle of Crystal Head vodka that I uh, had like my mantelpiece for two years, waiting <laughs> for this. No, no it, it's it's wonderful because obviously you want an audio, you, you write these things because you want to communicate certain feelings to other human beings. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> when you know when it was still in post, it was like howling at the moon. It's like no, no, we have written something that we think well, well you know, we hope is beautiful and might help you know, kind of convey how we feel to other people you know but we just need people to be able to listen to it you know <laughs> even 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 one other person listen to it not even many just you know so yeah it's just um yeah it, it's wonderful to for it to actually exist from beginning to end yes yeah. and like i say to actually have the privilege of writing and creating and executing and getting through post-production and delivering a complete story is 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 lovely yeah so many people don't get the chance to to see it all the way through yeah but it is like finish you do want like to you know you do want your orange slices at the end of it because it has been it has been a bit, a bit of a marathon but um yeah just definitely feel like i've got a load off actually yeah, yeah. it's just yeah <laughs> done yeah why, why rob you're looking well have you lost an entire audio drama i have i have it's come right off my hips i thought yeah. you were looking spelt <laughs> no, thank you very much i got to ask then each of you what was your Across the six years and the nine episodes, what has been the nicest or your most favourite thing that has happened or your favourite moment, whatever? Is there one thing you can single out from the six years and the nine episodes and say, that's the bit that I'm proudest of or happiest with or whatever? Okay, dropping episode nine into the star fold and saying, we're finished. <laughs> okay, well, for me, it's like, you know, there are certain just dramatic moments or whatever, even just even scene transitions again, or just things you, you, you write and then it turns out as you hoped it would or better. Mm. But I must admit, for me, it was actually when Jack rang me up and said, yeah, I've just heard back from Julian Glover's agent. He said yes to playing the baddie. Mm. And for me, yeah. that, w that was one, because that suddenly, it suddenly it stopped feeling like um, this tiny little project that no one was ever going to care about to something that suddenly had a bit of gravitas to it so um so the the first yeah. big wonderful thing was Julian Glover saying yes um mainly because for one other thing he's just been he's just this pop culture touchstone 
the you know he's been in everything we love anyway you yeah, know yeah the, he's been in a lot i mean there are many things which have influenced us and he's been in most of them hmm. but most recently was when we got katie manning to play queen victoria that, that was, was a lovely hour because yeah. uh just we we bat you know we been waiting nine episodes. Queen Victoria is mentioned right in the very first episode in scene five, I think, and it was always the intention that you would never ever see her until right to the end. And we were battling back and forth about who we could get to play Queen Victoria. And just by sheer fluke, someone I knew walked past me and said, "Oh, I'm directing a play with Katie Manning," and I was on the phone to Rob. Could we get Katie Manning? It's just yes, and you know and. She was within the studio within about three weeks, wasn't she? And again, because yeah. she does Iris Wild Time with David Benson, they're a, yeah. they've got their own shorthand anyway. And that was that was an amazing session because Katie's very versatile. They were just knocking all these voices back and forth. Anytime yeah. you gave her a note, she would just instantly correct. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. do a different take slightly differently, uh, and it was tremendous. And in the end, you get a performance out of her that I've never heard her give anywhere else. You don't even recognise it's her almost. I mean, you sort of can tell, but it's one of those ones where you have to think twice, is that who I think it is? Well, I mean, she did say at the time, I think, no one's ever asked me to do anything like that before. And and she can completely do it. Yeah. So that was fantastic. But... Yeah, just just to have people you um, you know you admire and respect like that give you the time of day. I'm not, I'm still not used to it, and I hope I don't get used to it. Actually, but, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Katie, Katie was a lovely session. Yes. Um, yeah. Okay, it's, uh, I suppose uh, it's been a joy to watch Christopher Finney unfold. Yeah, Smith. and um, also actually um, Francesco Quadruplo score I really love. I just I love his music throughout. Because you know each series has its own theme, and uh, yeah, I loved working with Francesco because he kind of you know the right score on on your on the scene suddenly it's suddenly it works in a way you kind of you're always worried the scene is going to go south on you, yeah, and suddenly when you've got the composer and that because that's always the last thing to go on, and with, so when you have the score and the score's right. Um, and it's that's a very lovely. cinematic score. That's what we wanted. We wanted mm. it to. Because uh, sometimes to, with to audio, kind of and this is not meant as a criticism of anyone or anything in particular, but sometimes with audio, as a listener to audio, you kind of. Because you're accepting that you're listening to something without pictures, particularly. And I mean, I know radio precedes television and film, but. You know what I'm saying? You yeah. kind of, you know, you're making do in a way because you've got nothing to look at. So you kind of also, you kind of also accept certain other things as well. If the music score isn't cinematic, you say, okay, well, in my imagination, it's slightly more cinematic. And you sometimes forgive things. But like you were saying with the whole audio design of the, the soundscapes throughout the thing, one of your big things is you have a cinematic score. So you don't have to imagine that. Just like you don't have to imagine the chickens in the street. You've got the chickens in the street. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's it's one of those things where... And, you know, I'm not saying that you don't get this anywhere else. But what I am saying is you've done it so nicely. It works so really well that it's just one of those delightful things. Again, that you don't really think about while you're listening to it. And then once you finish listening to an episode, you just kind of... Your mind goes back and your memory sort of 
takes a wander through the things you've listened to and the score is one of those things that your memory picks out. Yeah, I think we just got lucky with yeah. Francesca. I mean, we wanted something like that. We didn't expect we'd get it, but um, he'd, he'd done one other piece for Wireless, um, Medusa on, on the Beach. beach. And uh, yeah, we we heard that. We thought, yeah, he's good. We'll we'll get him on. But we mm. we, we definitely wanted something like that. Um, but I think yeah, with audio drama, we're used to not expecting much sometimes in a way that we are we're far more demanding of television radio yeah that's right um cinema everything else i mean when when we talk about this series one of the things uh one of the things i've always said is the mission statement would be can we hd audio yeah uh because you know if you think about your the example i use is think about your home entertainment system in the last 20 years you had four by three televisions that were as deep as a brick several bricks even uh you had a vhs recorder which was the new thing after betamax uh and in, then dvd came around 99 2000 so things got smaller tvs got flatter wider and now we expect hd television you know if you look at the first series of new who and watch some of that it's shot in sd and it looks it looks you know, different. It's what, it looks different. It's what they used at the time. But you would go, oh, that doesn't look as good as Doctor Who today. Yeah. Um, so when we were sitting down, it's like, could can we HD audio? And by that, make it richer, deeper. And it's not something that hasn't been done before. I think it's just something that's not done that often. Well, Big Finish are very, very good at this too. Oh, yeah. They, oh, no, they, they really are. are. They really are. Yeah. Big fans of Big Finish. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing with Big Finish is, if you listen to a lot of Big Finish, there are certain tricks and techniques that you kind of get used to. So I think I think one of the things as well about listening to Spring Heel Jack is, you have different tricks and techniques. So, you know, that there's, it's not that, you know, they're not as good as you, or you're not as good as them, but it's that you're doing a slightly different thing. So it's kind of refreshing to listen to you, in conjunction with them, and have two different things. Yeah, it's just a different house style. Exactly, big, yeah, big, that's what but, I was trying to say yeah, yeah. in a nutshell. Oh, yeah, but, but Big Finish have just produced so much. Mm. And yes, we have, exactly. So, we, yeah, we yeah. haven't, and we sound a bit... We, we, we just have a different... Just a different house style we've, we've developed. And uh, so we just... it. Th- that's just it. It's it's different, mm. um, but, and therefore, you know... But also in terms of what wireless has been and what it has done, it's been a very experimental company. So in terms of the techniques used, it's done studio recordings. It does, it still does studio recordings. It's done live studio uh, location live, recordings, location as well. recordings, yeah. binaural 3D recordings. Um, so, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of experimentation and as a result, we, we've, I think we've sort of maybe subconsciously picked and choose what we've learnt along the way to put it all in one little Spring Hill pot. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so because Wireless, you know, has given us the freedom to, okay, let's do uh, a production as a location recording. We know how to now use location recording elements and integrate them into Spring Hill. So that it's, it's, a, it's a mash of styles, if you like, as well. Yeah. We want we wanted to do a popcorn movie, but no one was going to give us any money to do that. So uh, you know, audio drama was like you know our way into doing something on that kind of canvas, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got to ask the question then: Are the two of you going to remain a partnership, or are you going your separate ways? 
Uh, both really, because we we um, yeah, no, we're we're working on a new I'm project right together now. at the moment. Um, but yeah, there's, no, there's nothing to talk about yet. The ink hasn't dried on that. Yes. But yeah, but we know we are writing. We are staying in audio, but we are doing other stuff as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, setting up a production company. You've written a screenplay. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna which, yeah, uh, which I'll be producing and you'll be directing, um, and a couple other bits and pieces as well. Yeah. So. But we are we are working on some more audio because it's it, it is a wonderful medium, and it's. Much, much easier to produce than anything else. You know, it, theoretically, you you know, everyone involved could be in their pajamas the whole time. So it's <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a very very civilized way of making drama. Basically, don't, don't have to put your foundation on in the morning. Yeah, yeah, it saves yeah. us so much time. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing that they say about audio is that you have to use your imagination because obviously you don't have the pictures there. Mm. And when they, they say, say that, th- yeah, well, well, I was going to say when they say things like that, that kind of makes it sound somehow lesser. But actually, if you sit and listen to it, the people who are making it have to give you as much as the pictures would have done without the pictures. Yeah, and crucially. The actors have to do that with their vocal performance as well. No, you, you, you push and kick and shove and guide people's imaginations into very specific directions. Yeah, you know, yeah. You, I, you don't, you, you try not to leave anything to people's imaginations, funnily enough. It's like, no, I, I know exactly how this big stone door is going to sound when it rolls over. Yeah, and that's yeah. going to, fine, everyone will imagine their own different big stone door. But, um, in a weird way, you, you, obviously there is going to be space for the imagination, but a lot of what you're trying to do is no, you're trying to take people to the specific, yeah, with yeah. with as, you, giving them as much information as possible. Um, in terms of that's in terms of performance, in terms of script, dialogue, lack of dialogue, sound design, score, all of that. I mean, obviously, it, you know. Yes, your, your imagination is very free in audio, but it's not as free as you think. No, that's that's the trick, at least. Right. Yeah. I suppose it only uh, remains for me to ask you: Where can people find all this? You can download it from the Wireless Theatre Company website, which is wirelesstheatrecompany.co.uk. Uh, there's over 170 pieces of uh, audio drama and comedy on there. Uh, some great. Just outside of Spring Hill, there's uh, some pieces by uh, Richard O'Brien, uh, Tim- Timothy Westbury and other scales, uh, Lionel Blair, Abby Titmus, a huge array, Stephen Fry, Christopher Timothy. But beyond that, it's a wonderful, wonderful place where you'll find a lot of fresh new voices, both in terms of acting and directing and uh, writing. So there's, uh, yes, there's a huge array of plays out there. Some are free, uh, most of a sale, or you could even buy a subscription for £25 to have access to everything. So it's it's all there online. It's a wonderful little world of uh, sort of, I don't want to say underground audio drama, but it's something different if you fancy a change from your Radio 4s and your big finishes. Yeah. Lots of different tones, genres, voices... Uh, lots of fun to be had, lots of tears. And... Yeah, so if you want to take a walk on the audio wild side, visit Wireless Theatre. Yes. Yeah. That's Wireless Theatre Company, which is all one word, .co.uk. That's, That's right. Right, guys, Rob, Jack, thanks very much, because 
I've really enjoyed Spring Hill, Jack. So, you know, this has been nice for me to sit down and talk to the two of you about it and probably find out more than I really wanted to know. (laughs) 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 But probably not quite as much as I really, you know, could have. But but it's been lovely talking to you. No, thank you very much. Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed yourselves. We oh, didn't yes. talk about McCoy Doctor Who era enough, but, you know, <laughs> maybe next time. Yeah, maybe next yes. time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, now then, we'll go over to the interview with Chris Perry from uh, Kaleidoscope. And again, my apologies for the sound quality, but believe me, it is worth your time listening to it. And I'm back, and now I'm talking to Chris Perry of Kaleidoscope, who, uh, fans of Lost Television will be aware, has been in the news all week, thanks to a series of announcements coming up on the uh, Kaleidoscope Facebook page about various things that we'll talk about in a minute. Chris, how are you? Good to be here. Um, Chris, before we start talking about what's been happening this week, really, the first thing is, I've got to ask, how did you get involved yourself in the subject of missing television? I think it, it just began really as a general love of all television. You know, I, I was kind of growing up in the early 80s when there weren't a great deal of repeats on the TV. And I would watch things like, you know, Dad's Army with my dad. And my dad would say, oh, this is a really good show. But there were other good shows as well. But, you know, you'll never see Chris like Steptoe and some because they, they haven't been on TV for donkey's years. And then I'd kind of get back from college and see things like The Baron and, you know, on a Thursday afternoon. And, and my mum would say, oh, but The Saint was so much better than The Baron. But, of course, you won't have seen The Saint, Chris, because you're too young. And so I, I developed this interest in a lot of the stuff, really, that um, we just couldn't get anywhere else. And then about 1987, when I got to Sixth Form College in Starbridge, I, I met a kind of group of people who were really interested in similar things to me. And that's really where Kaleidoscope started. A whole group of us who were just interested in seeing some of the past. So we never kind of dreamt that 30 years later we'd still be doing this. And also, we never kind of dreamt all those years ago that, that TV was missing, really, as well. I, I remember that when, when I, I met my original business partner Richard Dan, you know, he had he had just been to Pine Dean Films and bought a film print of the very first Likely Lads. And he was amazed that the BBC didn't have it. And I was amazed the BBC didn't have it. And I remember asking Steve Bryant, who who you know, is better known now for his work at the uh, British Film Institute. I remember asking him at the time to do me some lists of what existed of things like, you know, Dad's Army and, and May Gray and Steptoe and Son and the Troubleshooters. And he said to me, well, I don't know, Chris. Until we do the actual list, I'm not going to really know what's missing and what isn't. And I remember that when he sent me that list in about 1986, he wrote me this lovely letter saying, you know, I didn't realise until I did this list for you, Chris, that we've got all of May Gray. I thought we we were missing some, but it turns out we've got them all. And that kind of just set me off thinking, really, that TV was something that had not been kept all the time. Well, yeah, that's interesting. And this is the thing that shocks me. And for any of our listeners who aren't really aware of the situation, so this was how you discovered that a lot of TV was missing. Can you kind of, for our listeners who don't know, can you kind of explain the reasons why and how it came to be that a lot of television was missing? 
Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I mean, originally it, it was just that there was no way to record it. If you go back into the 30s, the 40s, and the start of the 50s, there, there, was, there was just no way it could be recorded. And also, there was this kind of view reading that television was was musical for the small box. You know, so the idea was that you know it wouldn't need to be recorded because you could watch it again and again. Uh, you know, just by going back to the acts because the same people would come come back on the telly all the time. And of course, that changed really with the advent of, of, of telerecording, the idea of kind of pointing a camera at a screen to record the output. And um, it was very crude in those early days, but it, it kind of worked. But even then, there was a kind of a kind of cultural snobbery, really, uh, that, you know, well, you know, we can't keep everything because it's very expensive, so we'll film just what we think is very important and very worthy. And, of course, the unions were happy to kind of play along with that in broadcasting because it suited them not to record it because at the end of the day, you know, it was work for their members if they were making new programs, you know, that they didn't really want to keep repeating the old programs. And then videotape came along, which was a, a great format for storing things on, you know, it, it, certainly in mean, two inch, a very stable format, but very, very, very expensive, you know, and when, when your whole program budget was the equivalent of, of buying one videotape to store it on, it was rather inevitable that videotape wasn't going to be kept and people would wipe it and reuse it and wipe it and reuse it. You know, and, and that's true of, of modern cassettes as well. The number of people who, you know, send us VHS cassettes and say, oh, but I've wiped over the start of it because, you know, I, I wanted to keep the James Bond film, so, so I, I recorded that over the front of Coronation Street. It never occurred to me that James Bond film might be easy to get, and the Coronation Street was the hard thing to get, you know. So it's, it's been going on for, for, for literally, literally decades and decades, this idea of, you know, you know uh, recording something that is a temporary thing, keeping it long-term really isn't something that needs to be done unless it's something really worthy like the Royal Wedding. So when when did the sea change come about when, as a nation, and certainly the people who worked for the broadcasters, when did they sort of turn around and say, well, hang on a second, these things actually are valuable and maybe we should have kept them? Well, it's... It, 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 uh... I guess the, the person that led the campaign most, really, was was uh, Dr. A. A. or Professor A. S. Briggs. You know, back in the mid 1970s, he wrote a, he wrote a piece for the government at the time, you know, arguing that the National Film Archive should should be a proper national film and TV archive because so much was being thrown away. Uh, and it was his kind of paper to the BBC talking about the cultural importance of keeping everything that persuaded the BBC to put in place the post of archive selector of which Sue Morden was the very first one. And, and Sue was absolutely kind of fascistic about wanting to get to get things kept. I mean, she had such battles against the kind of status quo of the establishment that still wanted to carry on wiping things. But she was absolutely firm in her belief that she wanted to get things kept and not just keep things then, but also kind of find things from the past, you know. And she ran into enormous issues with um, people like BBC Engineering who said, well, we own the videotape, the archive doesn't own videotape, we do. And so we had to fight that battle and get videotape kind of kind of brought into her archive remit. And she fought a battle with people like BBC Enterprises to get access to their film prints you know, because she, 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 she would ring up the British Film Institute and say, well, what do you have in the National Film Archive that we need back at the BBC? And they'd say, oh, we have these Doctor Who's. And she'd say, oh, brilliant, we need the War Games. And they'd say, yeah, well, we've, we've just been donated the War Games two weeks ago by you. And she'd say, well, hang on a sec. That can't possibly be true because I, I've told them to keep it. 
So how can they be giving it to you? And of course, it was then that she discovered there were whole departments in the BBC giving things away to the National Film Archive, you know, because they thought the archives didn't want them anymore. And that was when she started going around places like Villiers House, you know, slapping preservation orders on things and getting really annoyed, you know, kind of kind of internal memos from people saying, how dare you take our property? This is owned by BBC Enterprises. You can't have this physical film print. It's not your property. So she, she fought a massive battle. And it was that sea change, really. And it was her training of those archivists in the late 70s, early 80s that created the bedrock of all the kind of the better archivists we had who came along later who had this principle of keeping everything a principle i must say that has been lost in recent years by many archivists you know since people like sue Morden have, have retired and steve bryanty due to retire in a couple of weeks time you know the new generation of archivists coming through do not actually have the same appreciation that was there 40 years ago and i have to say that probably in, in five years time you and i will be having this conversation bemoaning the loss of some modern BBC and ITV programmes that have been wiped just to save storage space. Actually, yeah, that that happens as we speak. In fact, some of, I was going to say, well, well, my next question was going to be, what was the state of the archives in the mid nineteen seventies? But I mean, even as you're saying that, there are programmes that have gone out far more recently than that, and programmes that are probably going out today that just aren't being kept. Yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 it mainly comes about through through several factors nowadays. I, I mean, the purge in the 70s was a deliberate purge to reuse videotape to save money. And what tended to survive, survived because either there was a preservation order put on it, you know, Billy Baxter insisted they keep all the blue Peters, or, or it survived by accident because someone was using it for some project, uh, and it survived because it, it just didn't get wiped which is why you get odd editions of things surviving, but not whole series, you know. Um, and, and then, of course, some of that stuff was subsequently wiped in 1993 when, when they came to, to their kind of end of their two-inch transfer project and decided some things they wouldn't bother transferring, like play school, you know. And, and, and so what, what tends to happen is every time you upgrade to a modern format, you know, you go from, say, you know, two-inch to D3 or D3 to Digibeta, there's a certain amount of tapes that either won't play or their clusters being, you know, not important because no one's accessed them for 20 years. And about 10% of an archive will get chucked away just because people can't be asked to, to actually keep it, you know, which is terribly, terribly sad, but, 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 but it's true. It happened, you know, it happened in 1993. The BBC were wiping rent at the very time UK Gold was showing it because they thought nobody wanted to see it again. And then some bright spark in BBC Enterprises rang them up and said, do you want them back again? Because we're actually showing them now. We're selling them to a broadcaster at the very time you're wiping your masters because you think nobody wants them. You know, so you get ridiculous situations like that. But nowadays you get a lot of laziness. I mean, we are amazed by how many shows like The Word, The Big Breakfast, um, a lot of shows made by independent companies are not kept complete now because once you've gone past your 30-day legal compliance threshold, Ofcom says you can do what you like with the tapes. And, and these tapes literally just get you know, taken away by producers. They get given to the acts of the fear on them. They get destroyed because the independent production companies, you know, I mean, are in the business of making programs. They're not in the business of archiving them. They assume that Channel 4 or National you know, you know, Film Archive are doing that. And that isn't always the case. You know, the BBC assumes that every cash in the attic is being kept by the independent production company that makes it. 
But the independent production company is assuming the BBC keeps them all. So somewhere down the line, something slips through the net, you know. And things like BSB is a great example of that, you know. As recently as 1990, you know, no television junking effectively the entire BSB archive when Sky took over because they thought nobody would want to see it. And that's because they just assumed that the National Film Archive would have it all. Because the National Film Archive were when recording it off air. But of course, that was never going to happen in practice. The National Film Archive does not record every single program ever. It hasn't got the money to do it. You know, so there's, there's all these assumptions that it's somebody else's job to do it. And, and what we decided probably a good 15 years ago now was that it's our job to do it in kaleidoscope. You know, we will take in anything that people want to throw away because at the time, people think it's worthless when they give it to us. But we know in 20 years' time, someone's going to want it, you know, for some project. So we make it our business to find not just lost telly, but also taking orphaned telly, anything that people don't know what to do with, and radio as well, you know, and scripts, and photographs, and, you know, video cassettes, because at some point in the future, someone comes back to us and says, I'm writing a book, or I'm making a film, or I want to repeat such and such on Sky, and I can't find it. Can you help us? Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, and you, you've talked yourself right into it how did kaleidoscope start then and what's your position in it and what do you do as well i mean apart from apart from just looking after stuff you have the events as well so tell me all about kaleidoscope i think kaleidoscope is is, is one of those it's one of those great examples of what david cameron used to call the big society when david cameron was prime minister i mean we we have kind of been doing it for 25 years before he came along to try to put a political label on it. <laughs> but, 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 but essentially, I mean, we started in 1987 born purely of an interest in wanting to see old TV. And when we contacted TV companies, you know, but they all went back to us and said, well, it's a great idea you wanting to show archive programs, but, you know, you can't do it because there's copyright and it will cost a fortune to do it. You know, we will have to take, basically, you know, 60% of your admission fee off you um, for doing events. And you know, if, if you're agreeable to that, then you know, it, it'll cost you thousands. So I thought about this and I wrote back to them and I said, well, what would happen if you took 60% of an event that doesn't have an admission fee on it? It's a free entry event and we do it for charity. What would be your position then? And there were lots of calls to unions and lots of meetings in management at places like Thames TV. And then eventually they came back and said, well, actually, that will work. If you're non-theatrical and you make no profit out of any of this, then we can actually help you because, because you're, you're not making a profit. And you're doing a public service for us because you can take over all the kind of bits that we don't want to do anymore, you know, in terms of you know, uh, the, uh, the kind of public profiling of our archive for us. So, so we came to an agreement with, with all the various people all those years ago, and we did our first event, and it was, it was a good event. It wasn't brilliant, but it was a good event, you know, and we learned a lot about it because we were very young. But, but the one thing, of course, we did happen very quickly was we ran out of money. You know, the charity did, did well, but we ran out of money because we were funding it from our own pockets. We were all students at university. So, so Richard Dan, who was my friend at the time and became my first business partner, said to me, well, why don't we publish books about what we're doing, books about archive telly? And the, the money from those, the profit from those, will pay for the events. And we thought, that's a good idea. I remember saying to him, but nobody will buy them. Who's interested in books about what exists and what doesn't exist? Who wants to know? Anyway, we, we, we kind of put together our first books and um, 
and, and very generously Simon Cavard, who was my second business partner, agreed to actually pay for the printing of them. And they literally flew off the shelf and they sold out within 24 hours. And then we reprinted and sold out and reprinted and sold out. And suddenly we had TV companies asking for copies and the BFI asking for copies. And suddenly the book side really took off and gave us the money to, to actually then build, build the events bigger. Yeah. But of course the problem with that again was that you know, all the time we're doing that, we have to have things to show. So people started giving us cassettes. Uh, and eventually it got to the point where the archive was becoming quite big. And then, and then it came to the attention of TV companies who were digitizing their archives onto you know, D2, D3, uh, Digibeta. And they had all this analog videotape lying around, you know, one inch, two inch, um, 1500 cassettes, VHSs, you name it. They had all these formats lying around, they digitized and had nothing to do with them. And I said almost as a joke to Len Witcher at Thames TV, well, give us, give us your old cassettes, mate, and we'll have them. And then two days later, he ran me up and he said, I've got 20,000 here. You know, come and get them. They're all boxed up for you. And we were like, shit, what do we do now? We've got 20,000 video cassettes, you know. So, so, so we, we found ways around that by, by very quickly organising stories. When we started taking in those collections and people like Thames TV and the BBC and people like that, suddenly we then had, had you know, the BFI pushing people in our direction who got collections. And eventually, of course, the Bob Munkhouse archive came our way. And that was what really established our name, I suppose, with General Joe Public, the Bob Munkhouse archive. And all the time, it just kept growing and growing and growing and continues to grow. And of course, all the time, the book business was trying to pay for it all and eventually the books business just could not pay for it anymore there, there just wasn't enough money in the pot to pay for it all you know and and so we've explored various options over the last couple of years we, we were at one point as you probably know you know we, we had a local tv license and we ran a local tv company there was no money in that so that didn't really help us so in recent years we, we've mainly had to you know go into the business really of selling archive footage back to production companies to find a way to pay for the archive. And I have to say, without the help of people like Steve Burt, who put their hands in their pockets and buy lots of the film or videotape themselves, Columbus couldn't afford to keep going. I mean, we are, we are truly a kind of, we are truly David Cameron's big society. You know, 2,000 uh, volunteers run by a group of probably 20 hardcore volunteers who do it all in their spare time just because we don't want to see this stuff get chucked away. And, um, you know, I've been called every, every name from Anorak through to Looney in the last 30 years to do it. But, but I prefer to think of myself as a TV historian and an archive heritage expert because, you know, what, what was somebody's junk in 1988 is now someone's TV heritage. Well, exactly. I was, gonna, I was just going to make that point. And do you know what? I'll ask you... Uh, what, I mean, you've mentioned about people using, you know, videotapes and stuff on modern productions, which I guess is the kind of television, and there's a lot of it about these days, that looks back to the past, you know, the, the story of the 80s, the story of the 70s, all this kind of thing. But to get to the crux of it, what you're looking at is not just old TV, but you're looking at history and old television actually shows you something, not just about the people who made it, but about the society they made it in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, the point I try to make about, about what we do is that we are not selective. No, neither are we judgmental on what kind of comes and what comes out. You know, I, I do not sit in a room every night wearing an anorak and to watch 
32 hours of TV every night. So I, I have a day job as a teacher. You know, I, I also work for Channel 4. I work for ITV. And you know, I'm an archive producer. Um, does freelance work and and and, make, and and does other stuff along the way. You know, um, I, I do a huge amount of writing of articles and books and things like that. I've got a three-year-old son. I've got a beautiful wife who I love very much. You know, I am full of I am full of all sorts of other things. If you, if you come to this house, it is the the least TV ever seen in your life, nobody would ever realise that I have an interest in old TV at all, you know, you know this, is a, this is about a, a mission I suppose, you know um, I said recently on a Channel 4 pilot that, you know, Glidoscope uh, has been around longer than, than my two marriages and my wife divorce and my best friend committing suicide, and that's true you know, we, we've been in this as a group for 30 years, the friendships I have made are far more important to me in many ways than the programs that come in. You know, I mean, Tunnel of Fear, the Avengers episode, the chances of me actually ever watching it are probably, probably at 1%, one, 1%, you know, because the whole world and his aunt will want to watch it, but I probably will be lucky if I can sit down after Christmas to see it, you know, because I'm so busy in my life trying to preserve the rest of the past really you know and, and this is often what what people don't realize you know that when people come to me and say well you must be an expert on top of the pops or an expert on envision continuity now so i say no i'm not I've, I've got a whole team of people behind me who are experts i'm just the front person you know who puts the public face on it and does my best to try and you know, and, and keep the group all kind of together and going in the same direction and not wandering off at tangents so, you know i'm just i'm just the kind of the kind of the kind of the um the, the kind of what the chief exec you know, that's what i am i'm the chief exec you know but there's a huge amount of people kind of working around around us who are so knowledgeable and so dedicated to what they do um, that you know that it will never be recognised by any official body. You know, you know, no one will ever come along and give us an OBE or something because we just get on with it and don't tell people we're doing it. Oh, but you're doing a great service. And look, you've just brought up the Avengers episode, Tunnel of Fear, and that has been, well, we're recording this on the Tuesday evening about, well, it's about half an hour now before the second announcement is due to go out. But Tunnel of Fear, how did that come about and were you involved in its recovery? I mean, personally, were you involved in its recovery? Yeah, the, 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 the Avengers, in fact, the, the ABC television archive generally is something that probably out of all the shows that... Um, that do turn up, I have probably the, the most love for, really. You know, I, I was a, a big, big friend of Dave Rogers when he lived in this country, and I was very privileged to go with him down to Pinewood many times, searching out, in, you know, for the things like the early Honor Blackman episode, which at the time were considered lost uh, and, and were stuck in film archives in, in very rusty cans that nobody had ever opened. And, and it was very exciting to go down there during my kind of summer holidays and find things like Public Eye episodes and Out of This World episodes. So The Avengers was always very, very dear to my heart. And it, there's always been a sort of kind of slight connection between us. I mean, a few years ago, we were given some 35mm trims from the colour rig Avengers series, you know, and that was quite a discovery at the time. So the Avengers kind of follows me round a bit, really. And uh, when when the rumours first started surfacing online that um, a film collector had found this film print, you know, at first um, he went to Studio Canal to see if they would, would would take it back, and they were willing to take it back. But he, I have to say, he, he didn't really get a very warm impression of the people in Paris. They weren't exactly very very pleasant towards him. So he decided that he he wasn't going to return it direct to Studio Canal. 
because he was really worried the thumbprint would go into a ball and be seen again. And then, and then someone online said to him, well, have you gone and talked to Kaleidoscope? So I suddenly got an email from, from this gentleman saying, you know, are you interested in talking to me about, about this, this film print, which I've had for about 20 years. I bought as a job lot with a ton of Hollywood films um, back, back in the kind of the 80s, um, and I've never actually opened the can, you know, and I, and I actually only opened the can about, about two weeks ago because I thought it was a Hollywood film I'd got, and it turns out it's this episode of this series called The Avengers, and I've looked online and it says it's lost, you know. So it was quite remarkable, really, that the guy had sat on it all that time with no knowledge whatsoever, and, and it turned out he got a lot of other stuff as well. So, you know, one thing led to another, and, and now there's a much wider kind of collection that we're, we're gradually announcing over the course of this week. So how, well, before we talk about the rest of the announcements, how come the Avengers, an episode from series one, because for anybody who's listening who doesn't realise, series one was never apparently recorded and never was sold abroad, if I'm correct. So how did it end up in America and how did it come back with this job lot of, of Hollywood movies? Were you able to get to the bottom of that? Well, no, not really, because the, the can has got no label on it, unfortunately. The, the can is, is a completely clean can. I mean, I, I know my... <laughs> I sound like a real animal right now. <laughs> I, I, know my, I know my cans pretty well, because I've, I've sorted through thousands in my time. I mean, it, it's a can that, were, that was very common at the time for, for bicycle prints that were going round round the world, you know, particularly bicycle prints um, that went out, out of, of ABC television. I've seen many similar silver cans in my time with similar labels on them, you know, so the, the can is not overly unfamiliar but of course i mean after ucla found you know the, the bits of hot snow and the gun on the trapeze over in los angeles it made me realize that there were there were execs trying very hard to sell shows around the world you know back in the 60s and for what like i can work out from this print this was probably a print that was sent over to america to show to a tv network and nobody bought it and it was sent back to this country again you know and probably just got mixed up with something else i mean i, I remember be, being those Pinewood archives back in 1990 and finding a can mar marked up as um, out of the unknown, get off my cloud. When I opened it up, it actually had an episode of Dar 999 inside it, you know, but there was a can to a missing out of the unknown episode. And I remember joking at the time with Dave Rogers and saying to him, you know, there's probably a can in here marked Dar 999 and inside it, We've got an out of the unknown because someone swapped the film over, you know. And, and, and so that these things do happen, you know. It, it's one of those things. Uh, when I was at Ray Galton's house some years ago filming a documentary, he took us down into his basement and we were just generally looking through his basement. And um, I noticed a big 35mm film and I said, what's that? And he said, oh, it's a step to son pilot. And it was. It turned out it was a pilot made in America in 1967 for step to um, using the original script of the offer. And... Because nobody was interested in buying the series in 1967, they sent it back to him. And he sat in his basement for 30 years, you know, all the way from Los Angeles. So, so I think that's probably what happened. It was probably done as a test recording and probably sent over there to interest some network who weren't interested. Well, thank goodness the one they sent was one of the ones that's missing rather than one of the ones that survives. Well, well, I mean, one of the big problems with, with the first season of The Avengers, of course, was that, uh, I mean, because around that time there were so many issues with strikes in ITV, and it was going out every fortnight, uh, I, you know, and, I, and Ian Hendry was already beginning to express his interest in, in maybe not staying for the rest of the series, you know, I can kind of see why why it probably didn't really catch on in America in the same, in the same way it should have done. I mean, it was at the end of the day, you know, 
a show that, that was done virtually live on videotape that was telerecorded. He didn't have the kind of glossy appeal of the later Diana Riggs or Linda Thorson's, which, of course, became such a huge success in the States. Absolutely. Well, from, from what you've said, one of the things I gathered is that if something turns up, what you do is you go in there, you go through all the other tins, you make damn sure that there's nothing else hidden away that might be of interest to. Shall we talk about, uh, I mean, the rest of your announcements this week, which are yet to happen as we're speaking, but as this podcast podcast goes out, will have happened. Are they all from the same collection then? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I mean, tonight, Tuesday night, we're announcing the fact that the pilot episode for Softly Softly has turned up. Wow. The, the very first one it ever recorded and it went out i think as number five in, in the original run it did so that's quite quite incredible to actually find the original kind of you know first ever mounting as softly softly has survived well we've got two z cars from the very first series um well one of which is actually episode eight it's the earliest if you like missing episode there is for z cars so to find there again two editions from the first 20 of Z cars is really quite phenomenal. We've got two two survival documentaries made in the 1960s for ITV. Uh, we've got a human eye uh, that was shown on the evening when Kennedy was assassinated. One of the few programs they actually ran that night because it wasn't pulled. There's an episode of Here's Harry starring Harry Worth, another great sitcom. Episode of The World of Rooster, which, which is um, like, uh, the PG Roadhouse series from, from the late 1960s. Um, and, and a Dr. Finley's Casebook from 1963 which i know i know quite a few people you know are really interested in in, in those kind of shows so all, all in all it's it, it's a very nice little collection to turn up i have to say and this was all from the same chap yeah wow and were th- these things then had they all been in america or were these other things that he just picked up over the no, years no 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 they were just things he collect he'd collected over the years i mean i mean fil- it's interesting because i mean you know film collectors largely have their own kind of internal I guess, circuits of, of interest uh, and we're aware of quite a lot of missing telly held by film collectors around, around britain and around the world it's it's not like it's not like we don't know where some of this stuff is the trouble is getting it off them you know people either want a lot of money for them or sometimes they just don't want to sell them they're just quite happy to keep them you know uh, um this, this guy re- reckons i mean having had a good chat to him he's probably got a 1919 lost silent comedy you know as well you know, on nitrate which he's going to look at and, and see if indeed he's hit a missing one he thinks it is but he's going to double check it being nitrate you have to be quite careful with that stuff you know but but the, 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 these people don't ever think to check you know, very often if it's missing or not, because to them it's just their property. They bought it at a film fair. It's cost them twenty quid, and and, and they they like watching it, but but they don't really understand the significance. It might be the only print in existence. Is it then? I mean, this this brings up several avenues of questioning. But to me, the most important one then is: Do you think that broadcasters advertise enough the fact that a lot of telly is missing? And that a lot of people who might have access to this missing telly just don't ever get to hear about the fact that it's missing. I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, I mean, I guess uh, virtually every every person I've ever known who's worked in the TV industry has said to me, well, 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 I didn't keep anything. You know, I I didn't really feel the need to keep anything. And then when you start actually talking to them, they'll suddenly say, oh, I think I've got one photograph upstairs. Oh, I might have a couple of tapes in my attic. Oh, actually, I might have something after all, you know. And suddenly, it turns out they've got something. But 
they're kind of completely unaware it might be the only copy of it. They really think that probably what they've got is is a duplicate. And I mean, there hasn't been on TV now, well, there hasn't been, or radio for that matter, there hasn't been a concerted effort to find lost TV for many, many years. You know, the BBC Treasure Hunt was in 2001. You know, Red of the Lost Archives on ITV was 2007. And I have to say that they weren't, they weren't that widely publicised. You know, it's not like you had wall-to-wall blanket advertising after EastEnders, you know. Um, uh, in, I mean, today, on our Facebook group, we've had 284 people join our Facebook group today because they heard about the Avengers find. Well, I mean, generally speaking, we get maybe one or two people a month join our Facebook group. So, you know, and we've been going 30 years, and there were people joining our group saying we've never heard of you before. You know, www.lostshows.com, our website, which is where most people go to look for what's missing or not, you know, um, has been running since 2007, it has. And, uh, and yet there are still people that say, oh, I didn't know it was there. You know, and, and, so, and so I think it's a very difficult question. You could spend a million dollars and probably somebody would still say, well, well I didn't see it. You know, yeah. and if you say to them, well, you know, you know, yeah, but I did it on Facebook, I did it on Twitter, I did it on Instagram. These people will say, I'm 69, I don't have Instagram, I don't have Twitter, you know, uh, I get the Daily Telegraph. Did you place a full page out in the Daily Telegraph? Well, no, we didn't, that would cost us 10,000 quid, you know, well, in that case, I didn't see it. You know, so, so I, think, I think it's it's a very difficult situation sometimes these people finding out what is missing or not if 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 the one good thing i hope that comes out of the week of kind of fines and it's deliberate doing it one a night to get yeah. as much publicity as possible is because I, i'm hoping there are people out there who have got stuff will hear about it and will come back and contact me you know and say well well let, let's do a deal on this chris how you know how much should can I sell it to you for, or can I give it to you, you know, for whatever it is, you know, let, let's try and do some deal, because we know it's out there, we've just got to, got to try and get to it. Yeah, so then, I mean, by the sound of it, the majority of people that you deal with would be happy to let you have stuff back, either for a price or even as a donation, because, I mean, let's face it, this is, it might not technically be, but essentially, this is kind of charitable work you're doing, this is charity for the future, in effect. Is there, is there a? Uh, oh, it is. I mean, no. I, I, I mean, you're right. I mean, there is no one. There is nobody out there who kind of reimburses us for this. You know, I mean, if this Avengers film, we will return it back back to um, you know, Studio Canal, um, and they will take a copy and, and probably they'll release it on DVD. But when it comes out on DVD, no one will give us ten percent of the proceeds or whatever. You know, because because the people we deal with in the archives are friends. They're people we've dealt with for 30 years, you know. What they will do is probably maybe give, give us a copy of something that, that we quite like to put in our archives, so we'll do some kind of swap or whatever, you know. But, but largely, there's no money in this, in that sense of the word, you know. I mean, we have returned so many shows in the last 30 years, which are now out on DVD or have been shown on UK Gold, you know, and none of that money ever comes to us because we're not the copyright holder. So from that point of view, it's not a kind of commercial deal for us, you know. I mean, we always hope that people will return things. And if someone came along and said, you know, I want £20,000 for, you know, this VHS tape of Chegger's place pop, which is missing, we'd say, well, will, will you keep it, mate? Because for £20,000, we're not paying it, you know. We might do you a swap for another Chegger's place pop or give you 100 quid for it, but, but you're taking the mickey if you think you're going to get 20,000 quid for it, you know. Whereas someone comes along with a missing Doctor Who... We might say, well, we'll give you 20,000 quid for it. 
because we know there's enough interest in it out there to make it worthwhile. But we'll never turn it away. Any of it, we won't turn away. We won't turn away continuity. We won't turn away sports programs. We won't turn away factual programs. We, you know, we, we, we store everything we do. So we will always find a way to do a deal with somebody on it. You know, if they come to us and say, well, I've got some missing top of the pops or whatever, well, we'll try and help them to see some missing top of the pops. The BBC are very willing to do those kind, kind of, 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 kind of, a, kind of, kind of um, assistances, if you like, because they value people returning stuff. But, but, we'll, but we will always try and find a way to make sure it gets back into the archive without setting too dangerous a precedent, you know, yeah. um, along the way. But what we really want to do is just make sure it's safe, because, you know, I've seen far too many things, you know, given back to archives and go missing again. You know, I can think of two syllables Returned in 1995, which are, and along with the BBC, the BBC have lost them, you know. And, and, and so, you know, I always kind of say to people, by all means, return it back directly if you want to, but but let's take a copy first because you know, you know, in 20 years' time, someone will be sitting there going, well, let's jump this old rubbish called Silver Black because nobody wants it anymore, you know. Shocking. Um, look, a couple more questions because you've got to dash off in a minute, but a couple more questions, and one of them is. Have you ever had what might be a heartbreaking moment or which might be a moment of kind of, in a way, relief at the same time as heartbreak when you found out that somebody's got something that means a lot to you and you haven't been able to get it off them? Oh, without, I should say, without naming names or naming programmes or whatever, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, well I, I, I mean, I think three, three kind of... I guess kind of situations spring to mind now. I, I, I mean, I mentioned Richard Down earlier. You know, my, my business partner who committed suicide, and um, I, I'm I'm always terribly sad that he didn't get to see so many wonderful things that he would have loved to have seen because he killed himself. You know, I know that he, he would have been overjoyed that people like Phil Morris found Doctor Who. You know, and he would have loved to have seen them again. And I I think that is tremendously sad. Uh, it was it was sad at the time. 30 years ago when we we literally missed buying things like late night horror by five minutes you know we'd ring up film dealers and they'd say oh i've just sold 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 this, this print and that happens now i mean duran sold an episode of onmd a few years ago which was missing paul foster films sold a dr finley's casebook a few years ago which is missing those prints are out there somewhere with someone and they've got them you know which is great i think i think my biggest sadness though is, is going to to a guy in um in london a couple of years ago with a bbc colleague and looking at this huge array of missing bbc comedies he had on 60 mil terror recordings some some really you know top draw um titles there and you know despite our best efforts and despite the best efforts of the bfi as well this guy still sits on these film prints and and we cannot find any angle to make to make him kind of make them accessible to people. And I think that is tremendously sad. There's somebody out there has a fantastic collection of BBC comedies, all of which are missing, you know, and they're they're rotting away in his house effectively because there's no there's no backup copy somewhere. There's a fire tomorrow; it'll all go up in smoke, you know. Yeah. Or, or if, the, if if there's some water damage from the pipes above and it leaks on the cans, they've gone forever. And um, I just, I just can't work out what what what, what the guy kind of wants to to, to kind of, you know you know to, to kind of, I can't work out yeah. what he's achieving by just hanging on to them and that makes me sad. Okay, let's ask a happier question to finish with then. In all the years that you've been doing this, what was your greatest success and what was the the discovery that has made you the happiest? 
In fact, has it been this week with Tunnel of Fear, maybe? It's an, it's an interesting question, because I was kind of... Um, I, I was just trying to kind of think about that, actually, because Alan Hayes posted on our Facebook group last night and kind of said, you know, um, is, is this the greatest find you've ever had? The, the Avengers, and I was trying to think about that as to what I would consider to be a really good find. And it's a very, very hard question. I think it depends on what you love as a genre. I mean, I mean, I, I think that finding Lenny Henry's very first ever audition on New Faces was an incredible find. And, you know, the, well, what were the kind of chances that someone like Bob Munkhouse would have kept it on the end of a recording of something else, you know, completely unmarked on the tape, and we actually found it? I think that's quite unusual. I remember when we did it out after the unknown a couple of years ago, you know, I, I was stunned when we returned an episode of that to London the World. You know, and that to me was a fantastic sci-fi play from the 60s. <coughs> so... <laughs> It's very hard, really. I mean, I think people do regard the Avengers as being one of the kind of big holy grails of television. But um, I think I think amongst my personal favourites, I would rank things like the Lighter Lads episodes as being my personal favourites. The fact we found two of those, that, you know, the, the fact that we actually found the very first one of that, and then we found a series two episode as well. I think I think that is fantastic in itself as well. Oh, brilliant. Right, I should ask you one more thing, which is uh, how people can find you, how people can get in touch, and how people can help out. Well, I, I mean, there are several ways of doing that. I mean, if you go to Eventbrite, um, you can look up the event that's coming up on the 12th of November. We've actually hit our maximum tickets now. We have 250 tickets, 250 seats. But having said that, we still have probably 10 more places because that, that 250 does include the organisers. And it's unlikely they'll be sitting down. <laughs> I'll be running around too much running it, you know. But uh, so there's a few tickets left there. You go to www.lostshows.com. You can contact me via there. You can go to www.kaleidoscopepublishing.co.uk and contact me via there. You know, all those are good places to get hold of us, you know, and um, and speak to us. And come on Facebook, join, join our Kaleidoscope group on Facebook and talk to me via, via that as well, you know. Um, we're always looking for people who, who you know, are, are willing to give up some time, really, um, just to try and help preserve the past. Brilliant. Well, I know how busy you've been this week, Chris, and how busy you indeed still are. So, uh, you know, it just remains for me to say thank you for sharing some of your time with us. No, that's brilliant. Well, the, the one I'm, I'm delighted, you know, to, to be on your podcast, so to speak. So, hope to speak again. Excellent. Thank you very much. Right, well, I hope in spite of the problems with the sound there that you thought that interview was worth listening to because I tell you what, it certainly opened my eyes a bit um, listening to Chris talking and I, I, for myself, I thought it was a fascinating discussion. Um, but until then, until next week then, it just uh, remains me to say thanks once again to Jack and to Rob for joining me and talking about Spring Heel Jack. Thank you, guys. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And until next week, when I have no idea what's happening, but I think maybe it might be the regular blue boxes again. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> until then, I was JR. I was Jack. And I was Rob. And we will speak again soon. Thank you.